I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Mrs. McCready. I'm afraid so. The professor is unaccustomed to having children in this house. And as such, there are a few rules we need to follow. There will be no shouting or running, no sliding on the banisters, no touching of the historical artifacts. And above all, there shall be no disturbing of the professor. 96, 97, 98, 99, 100. Ready or not, here I come. here tonight after years and years of promising to cover this trilogy of films from the 2000s. With us is Name Chaibiti, Narnia enthusiast extraordinaire. Hello, Name. Hello, everybody. We will be back later on. Sorry, that sounded like the uh, podcast was done. <laughs> we will be back. That was it. We will be back later on to talk about Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader movies. But for the time being, we just want to focus on C.S. Lewis's first story of seven, written in 1950, only five years after the end of World War II. This was a period when densely populated urban areas of Britain became targets for the bombs of the Luftwaffe. Many of the children living there really did get sent out to stay in country homes for a few years to both protect them from harm and to keep them away from the anxiety of the war itself. It was a time of upheaval, fear and frustration for the kids as they transitioned from innocent childhood to forced maturity, not unlike a sharply elevated version of the recent years of pandemic lockdown. 
Readers and listeners of New Century will catch many inspirations just in this one story, as well as the extended chronicles. And I can't believe we covered those of Riddick before Narnia. The kids being sent away from Clearwater in secret rooms for the duration of that pandemic, which I wrote about in 2013, some seven years before COVID. Now, while a lycanthropy disease isn't at all the same as the threat of being bombed, the separation from parents and normal life and being dumped into a big strange house with an enigmatic caretaking benefactor absolutely lived in my head for decades. If we are careful, and if we are lucky, the epidemic will not reach us here, and the U.S. Army will have a victory. If we are even lucky, then when it is safe to return to our homes, the families we have left behind will greet us with open arms. Hold on to that thought. It will keep you going when things are hardest. And James and Abigail in Uncivil Outlaw wind up in their own figurative wood between the worlds in The Magician's Nephew as they stumble through dimensions, my own Diggory and Polly. Abigail checked her compass and gazed out across a great plain which lay atop or alongside the path she had followed in our world. It would lead us back to this place's equivalent of Washington, D.C., the area where that lonely stone chamber dwelt. Pressing on through these woods could get us lost easily. We're lost already. I'll jump straight to the punchline on a joke that's kind of racist, but where the fuck are we? I still don't know. I didn't want to open up to that world sea, which looked the same as ours. Because an alternate Agent Lee and Mr. White with the exact same agenda could have come charging through. God, why didn't you take us to Autumn? At least we know those people will probably help us. Not answering this, I simply stood and waited. Because the only known wind door back to our world then turfs us out into the vault at Langley. She concluded, looking back again. We don't want to go down that road. And there is more than a hair of Morgrim in Captain Boltus. What can I do for you, Captain? Bacon and eggs all round, is it? Is she upstairs, downstairs, or out the back? If you tell me the truth now, you'll escape the hangman's noose. The fire lion from Tiger's Eye absolutely stems from Aslan. And then I feel him. A padding paw fall upon the leaves and the earth underneath. A splay of dappled light across the clearing before me, the scope of which is inverted and blurred. I hear his tread. Not upon his hind legs like I would walk, but upon four, at the apex of the hunt, or as we once were. This is the image of our beginnings, the sun haloing his great, flaming mane as he draws near, and looks down upon this fallen beast that I am. He is the Fire Lion. Peace, dear one. He breathes, his voice rich and resounding, echoing around the clearing in my cave. How are you here? I am so far from home. I never left you. And you are not so far from home as you think. Am I to live? All your life you have fought. 
If this day is your last, then you may count each one before it as a victory. My heart slows. He kisses my forehead and melts away as a new shape emerges. Just as the white witch is threaded through the beguiling and terrifying ageless demonic goddess of Morg, the great leopard towers over me far larger than one of her kind should be. Her fuchsia eyes gaze down into mine searching for something. Her cowled dark cloak ripples as the wrappings surrounding her body rustle and billow in the jungle winds. She leans down, her face close to mine. It is beautiful and fills me with dread. I fight all my urges to look away and instead meet this visage with my bold, upturned chin. I have explored and strayed from the firesides, and now the wilds will claim me. You are lost. She purrs in a voice that seems to creep around the trees, through the very earth and wood. <laughs> and, and you, you are, are found. found. I, I shall, shall call you. Firebrand. My name is Firebrand, she says calmly and steadily, and I know it is the truth now. And of course, the nag has its roots in Bree, or Bree Ini Brini Huhiha, the titular horse and his boy from book three. Nobody forces me to carry them. I had come to brush you down. I don't need it. You don't want it. Never did get that stew I was promised. We had kind of a busy night. And nobody came to check on me. I'm here now. And oh look. Oberon produced a flask from his knapsack. Leftovers. So that's what I'm to be given to dine on. Leftovers. Listen, I'm not going to tell any of the others I came to see you. So you can either eat this delicious cold stew I made and accept a brush down, or I can walk out of here and you can stay dirty and hungry. Either way, I'll remove the corpse from your living area. I will take you up on your offer. Brush away, but don't you look at me. Oberon began his attendance of the horse, smoothing down the rough, matted, and clumped coat with a pair of firm brushes that were too small for his great Akka hands and had to be delicately gripped between his fingertips. The nag contented himself with staring straight ahead. Each of them felt the warmth of the other as Oberon worked at the knots of tension in those mottled flanks. So, <clears throat> uh, you doing anything this weekend? No talking. Fine by me. Even the simple business of making sure you wipe the blood off your sword became a practicality baseline for our family that actively annoys Willow whenever they see it not happening on screen. They're like, just wipe the blood off! It's corrosive. My first encounter with Narnia was the six-part BBC TV adaptation, the first of three seasons which began in November 1988. I was eight years old and living in an old house out in the middle of the English countryside for those half a dozen dark Sunday evenings when it was cold outside and I was lucky enough to be able to watch TV in front of an open log fire. That makes this my first major foray into a long-form fantasy book series adaptation for the screen. 
I read the seven books over the next few years as the BBC adapted Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and The Silver Chair. In particular, I loved The Magician's Nephew, which feels like one of the few really decent and valid prequels, though it has never been adapted for the screen. I also had the abridged audiobook for A Horse and His Boy, a story I also got to see on stage in my tweens. Shasta stared into its great eyes, and his own grew almost as big with astonishment. However did you learn to talk? Hush, not so loud, replied the horse. Where I come from, nearly all the animals talk. Wherever is that? asked Shasta. Narnia, answered the horse. The happy land of Narnia. Narnia of the heathery mountains and the thymy downs. Narnia of the many rivers, the plashing glens, the mossy caverns and the deep forests ringing with the hammers of the dwarfs. Oh, the sweet air of Narnia. An hour's life there is better than a thousand years in Kalorman. It ended with a whinny that sounded very like a sigh. I was not for six by the seventh book, The Last Battle. It was just a devastating finale. In particular, what was done with the character of Susan, which we will talk about on a future show. That unsettling decision on Lewis's part haunted me, and I eventually wrote a short story about old Susan after being disappointed by Neil Gaiman's attempt at the same thing. It, it starts with a centaur's dead cock, and I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, dude. Once again, this renewed promise of generational world-hopping filtered into my long-term writing. In short, this was the book series to me that Lord of the Rings was to many Tolkien fans, and we all sat down together in 2001 to watch The Fellowship of the Ring, and some Tolkies were horrendously disappointed by what Jackson and Weta did with the Middle-earth in their head. For Sharon and I, that trio of films climbed to the highest of peaks in our estimation of movies. Coupled with the supremely popular Harry Potter adaptations in the early 2000s, there was a rash of studios all racing to produce kid-friendly fantasy movie series, all hoping that they would strike it rich, much like the arms race of MMORPGs that followed World of Warcraft, or military shooters that followed Call of Duty, or superhero movies that followed Spider-Man, or cinematic universes that followed the Avengers. So many speculative attempts. Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events in 2004 stalled. Aragon in 2006 stalled. The Golden Compass in 2007 stalled. The Dark is Rising in 2007 stalled. Inkheart in 2008 stalled. The Chronicles of Spiderwick in 2008 stalled. Percy Jackson and the Olympians in 2010 stalled. The Hobbit in 2012 didn't stall, outstayed its welcome. Only Game of Thrones succeeded because that, like Shrek, was aiming at an audience who wants mature, filthy fantasy. Get her out and in. I've always wanted to see the wall. You're Tyrion Lannister, the Queen's brother. Greatest accomplishment. Did I offend you? Sorry. And bacon, burnt black. Charms of the North seem entirely lost on you. I still can't believe you. This is flagrant misrepresentation of the content of Game of Thrones. Everything's better with some wine in the belly. But amid this, dwarves, elves, wizards and magic gold rush, three out of the seven Narnia films were adapted, and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe from 2005 is easily the best from this period. 
Critics compared it unfavourably with the Rings trilogy, dismissing it as too light and fluffy, emerging only two years after Return of the King swept the Oscars. It's not entirely unfair to compare the two, insofar as the makers of Narnia clearly absolutely wanted a film made by those as passionate, creative, and in love with the world as Weta, employing Richard Taylor himself for three years of pre-production, reliant on the KNB effects house for practical effects and Rhythm and Hues for digital. Now, listening to Richard at interview and indeed chatting with him in person at the Fellowship Festival in 2004, it was clear that after leaving Middle Earth, Richard and his wife Tanya Roger were wistfully desiring a return to the greatest creative period of their lives. So this provided as much edification for them as it did for us. It's worth noting that Rhythm and Hughes went on to work on The Golden Compass, the stalled attempt at a second bite of the epic fantasy pie from New Line Cinema, and they won, over time, three Oscars for Best Digital Effects for Babe, The Golden Compass, and Life of Pi, and as a result, eventually wound up closing in 2020 because far fewer studios would hire a team so prestigious, along with the complications of COVID. This is a case of that coveted industry recognition being a bitter double-edged sword, though some of the last work of Rhythm and Hughes can be seen in the phenomenal RRR. The actual plans to make The Chronicles of Narnia began in the 1990s with Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, but the technology to render this world believably wasn't there yet. Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter broke the floodgates, legitimizing the green light in late 2001. Originally, the plan is set the Pevensey kids in America, much like that uh, 1970s animated version. I'm here! I'm here! I've come back! I'm all right! It's all right! I've come back! What on earth are you talking about, Lucy? Haven't you been wondering where I was? You'll have to hide for longer than that if you want people to start looking for you. But I've been away for hours and hours. I hardly notice when you're here. Now, now, Lucy's having fun, Edmund. No, I'm not. I mean, I was, but I... What? Well, what do you mean, Lucy? Exactly what I said. I went into the wardrobe and was gone for hours. Don't be silly, Lucy. We've only just come out of that room a moment ago. Hold on, Susan. Let her have her fun. That's all it is. Right, Lucy? Wrong! It's it's a magic wardrobe. Come, I'll show you. Uh, but because Harry Potter made Americans go, oh, it's so British, it's great, they went ahead and said, yeah, okay, you know what, make it accurate to the books and make the kids British and set it during World War II. And because of the insane success of Lord of the Rings, yes, you can shoot large bits of it in New Zealand. Guillermo del Toro turned down directing duties so that he could focus on Pan's Labyrinth, and as with The Hobbit, I dream of what his version would have been like. Andrew Adamson, who snagged the role in the end, was director of the Academy Award-winning film Shrek. <laughs> a movie that necessitated that this Best Animated Features award be introduced, and which beat Monsters, Inc. and Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius in 2002. Disney didn't even bother entering Atlantis The Lost Empire that year. Richard Linklater was denied entry because rotoscoping for Waking Life apparently isn't animation, and why would anyone else prefer Studio Ghibli's Spirited Away to... Checks notes. Shrek. 
It is, however, noteworthy that abiding green cultural footprint Shrek is one of the most elaborate adaptations into feature film-length story from a thin pamphlet of a kid's picture book about a gross, bogey-eating monster. Uh. But the actual wizardry that Adamson worked there cannot compare with quite how rich and detailed this fleshed-out version of Narnia that he and his team delivered here. This is everything I could ever have wanted, and if I'd seen it in 1991, aged 11, it would have been my favourite movie of all time, until I saw The Fellowship of the Ring ten years later. In fact, some of the only films to challenge The Lord of the Rings in recent years in terms of how much I adore them include Captain America the First Avenger, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame, written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who had the job of adapting the screenplay for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That this was only their second writing gig and how they managed to spin the archaic wartime verbiage into believably natural yet not acronistic dialogue is testament to their extreme talents. The fantastical land treated seriously as though it were absolutely a real place, taking a leaf out of Jackson, Walsh, Boyens, Taylor, Rogers' voluminous book. The costumes by Isis Musenden could stand alongside those of Nyla Dixon, eschewing the dirt and subtle wear for entirely grounded earth clothes and suitably legendary armour and dresses in Narnia. The score may not be quite at the level of operatic perfection with Howard Shaw's, but it is Harry Gregson Williams' crowning glory. Dreamlike, wistful, crackling with mystical anticipation, gutsy, bombastic, noble, and tear-jerking. It brings the emotional impact home. The film builds upon some very sparing descriptions in the book to expand the story in several ways, still taking half an hour less than the pretty much word-for-word -word BBC version, structuring this as an epic cinematic adventure that transcends its modest literary roots. It also goes about itself in full knowledge of how the other six stories in the series are going to shape up, with a sly reference to Bree the horse and Philip, the events of the magician's nephew being carved into the wardrobe, along with the significance of that wooden artifact itself, which is made from the wood of a tree planted with a Narnian apple by Professor Kirk when he was a child, having witnessed that new land's creation. This would be why Jim Broadbent's professor reacts so hungrily when told about Narnia. The writers here know its significance to him. She thinks she's found a magical land. In the upstairs wardrobe. What did you say? Um, the wardrobe upstairs. Lucy thinks she's found a forest inside. She won't stop going on about it. What was it like? Like talking to a lunatic. No, 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 not her, the forest. You're not saying you believe her. You don't? Well, of course not. I mean, logically, it's impossible. What do they teach in schools these days? And of course, its connection with the lamppost, which was effectively planted and grew like a tree when Jardis threw a bit of lamppost broken off during her rampage in London at Aslan. Some 41 years or so prior to the events of this film, around about 1900. 
If you look at the base of that lamppost in the film, you'll see root-like structures burrowing into the snowy ground. As Willow pointed out, that makes these two artifacts from each dimension and intrinsically linked. They're like exchange students, hence the portal in and portal out. Adamson's goal was not necessarily to faithfully adapt the quaintly antiquated English mannerisms of the novel, but to convey how he felt reading the book as a child. A manner C.S. Lewis has always had a great respect for, being of a wise disposition, calm yet passionate, deriding the sneering apathy that Lewis observed in people who were trying far too hard to be grown up. And yet there is such a playful edge to the seriousness with which events are handled, and so much of that comes down to the casting of the kids. William Mosley as Peter, Anna Popperwell as Susan, Skander Keynes as Edmund, and especially Georgie Henley as Lucy perform as nuanced, authentic versions of their characters, never leaving us in doubt as to what's motivating them. They imbue the production with distinct flavours of anxiety, discomfort, peevishness, overwhelm, warmth, and wonder. One need only watch a few minutes of them talking behind the scenes to observe how close they were and how exceptionally, seemingly effortlessly, but in reality attentively and respectfully, Andrew Adamson handles working with child actors. That he did not craft a career overseeing all seven Narnia movies as producer once he was done directing is to the world's loss. Occasionally I stop and think of how many movies we've had since Voyage of the Dawn Treader that I could just easily, like just big fantasy movies that nobody liked that I could easily swap for the four remaining Narnia books. I'm just going to reel off ten of these that were made from 2010 onwards. You've got Wrath of the Titans, the sequel nobody wanted. $150 million that cost. Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Whatever the hell happened backstage for that thing with Disney, $133 million. The Last Airbender, a film that should not exist, Paramount, $150 million. Alice Through the Looking Glass, $170 million. That's Disney again. Jack the Giant Slayer, good idea. Give Brian Singer $200 million to play with. Oz the Great and Powerful, hey, let's get in on that Oz action. From Disney, $200 million. Green Lantern, I'm mostly steering away from superheroes at this point, but that thing that everyone regrets cost $200 million. The Lone Ranger, Johnny Depp, and Army Hammer. $250 million. John Carter of Mars. Now you'll meet people who are like, you know what? John Carter's pretty good. And that actually may be true, but it was a massive box office flop and a bomb, a blight on Andrew Stanton's career. It cost $306 million. And finally, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. I missed out all the other pirate sequels just to focus on the fact that Disney made this for $320 million. Can you remember which one this was? And at just over $2 billion spent on crummy movies, that is one of the most expensive lists you will ever hear that amounts to little more than disappointment. And yet they just couldn't get any other Narnia films off the ground. No Silver Chair, no Horse and His Boy, no Magician's Nephew, no Last Battle. But I mean, shit, if Disney just saved the money from The Lone Ranger and John Carter and didn't bother turning them into rubbish movies that turned into not-franchises, they could have fixed Flint, Michigan's water years ago. There's no point doing that. You're not gonna get $2 billion back. 
We begin with the crisis in the bombing of London. Now, what does this expanded scene achieve? Because it's it's like one half sentence in the book, but they actually start off much bigger here. And and what does that achieve? The movie takes time to kind of display what a real war is. And the kids throughout, you know, the, the, the reality of the movie and the fantasy of the movie know that it's dangerous and that you can't mess around with it. If this was in, like, if it was set in modern day America where these kids have no context of what a war is, they, the, the characters could easily be all like, oh, whatever, this is all make-believe, it's all fun, we're gonna fight each other. But you juxtapose the bombing of their homes and now, you know, when they go into the fantasy, they have you know, attackers that are out to kill them. It's not the first time that they've been, that their lives have been attempted on. Mm. And it, it's a great way to, to, to teach the audience and to teach the kids why this is so, why you want to avoid it. The significance of having a bit of extra pre-Narnia, certainly pre-Professor Kirk's house, mm for the kids and giving them an opportunity to interact is quite important because the the book throws you very quickly into their new scenario. We don't really get a sense of what they're coming away from and given that the 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 feel of the book obviously it's it is written for quite young children and it having that sense of escapism is important. But it, it does, I think, give it a, a slightly heavier feel if you get an outline of what it is that they're escaping from. I was initially introduced to this book at the age of eight. But yeah, so I'd, I essentially moved from RAF bases and estates to a North Yorkshire village, much more rural and remote, and was feeling very isolated from what I'd left behind, which was a, a very different experience. And the teacher at my new school read us The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Oh, nice. So this absolutely was my Lord of the Rings. This was my my sort of... This and The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, which she read as the later the same year, were effectively my introduction to fantasy children's fiction, although I was already pretty into... Uh, like mythology type stuff mm. and this was a oh there's mythology type stuff in stories set in England too mm. which felt quite good um, I was homeschooled and uh, my mom read me the first few books as part of kind of like our English curriculum um, but uh, they only made like literary guides for the first three or four and so my dad is a huge fan of these books and so when my mom stopped reading because it was time to move on to other material, he's like, all right, I'm going to read you the rest. And like, hmm. I have very clear memories of him reading Horse and His Boy to me and, and pretty much all of them. You know, so so it, it was kind of a joint effort by my parents to, to get these stories told to me. I, I saw the, uh, the BBC adaptions. I saw them on VHS that my grandma had. And then the, this movie came out. Um, I would have been nine when this movie came out. So it's kind of the same time for you guys with the BBC. I just loved the um, the fact that it was kids. You know, I, that's just, it brings in the, the kid audience that it's heroes that could be us. These kids aren't like chosen ones. 
you know, they there's a prophecy that they fulfill, but these are really just the kids as they are. Uh, I thought when I was a kid uh, that Edmund in the BBC version was uh, really difficult to like when you're when you're young because all you see you have a very strong sense of justice and all you see that is that he's a little sneak. You know, his, his the actor tries his best with a loathsome character. Lucy, you must talk to us. Why don't you admit it was all a story? You know I don't lie. I never lie. It would be the easiest thing in the world to say I'd made it all up. But I didn't. So I shan't. Found in new countries in the cupboard lately. But uh, Skendar managed a real vulnerability from Jump Street with this, and... Willow kept sticking up for him whenever Peter was, uh, was was trying to sort of get him to fall into place. And even if it was just for his own safety, Willow interpreted that as bullying. It, it comes down to the fact that he stops at the beginning during the bombing raid in, as everyone else is running to the shelter to get what appears to be the only photograph of their father uh, and, and try to rescue it from the house before the house becomes a, a, a ruin. I mean, it's... It's heavy-handed symbolism in terms of their whole domestic situation as being torn apart, but it, it hits kids immediately so that you actually do sympathise with Edmund, which is really key to the story. I don't think Lewis ever... Like, Lewis got to go inside Edmund's mind and, and actually have us sort of go through all of his misgivings, but he never quite sold it in the same poignant way as, uh, the, you know, this, this poor frightened kid who's in way over his head that uh, is illustrated so vibrantly on screen uh, in this film. Mm. I think the way Lewis puts it across in the book, because, yes, you do get some of Edmund's internal, if not monologue, at least mm. his perspective on what's going on. And luckily and the narrator uh, disapproves of his shitty behaviour, yeah, like, uh, yeah. but like drawing is, glasses on a stone lion. It is framed as Edmund is not really a bad kid, but he is very resentful of Peter's leadership position. And mm. this, I mean, through reading this and Enid Blyton books and loads of other stuff that was written for kids around Teenage this time. Ninja Turtles. There really is this irritating tendency that the leadership role tends to fall to the oldest boy, regardless of what leadership qualities he actually has. Mm. So that sort of the, the younger people bristling under that... Uh, sometimes undeserved authority is not an unusual character dynamic. Mm. But I, I recall a section, I can't remember exactly what's going on around him, but it, Lewis does say Edmund is not a bad person and he's not doing this because he wants to hurt his siblings, mm. but he, he is resentful of Peter and wants to get back at him and he genuinely doesn't really understand the magnitude of what he's pulling them into. Yeah. I um, have a very paralleled relationship with my brother. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm the oldest of five and uh, the, the middle one, uh, he, he would always come into conflict about like who was better to be in charge. And he kind of had this resentment that I was born first because he, feel, he felt that he should have been. This is all water under the bridge now, uh, thankfully. <laughs> but I definitely um, recognize uh, not just a sympathy for Peter, but a sympathy for Edmund. Because I'm like, oh yeah, I know. I I, I haven't lived that, but I've seen that up close. Mm. And 
you, I, I get it. You know, there, there's a, especially for Edmund as the character, because he misses his dad a lot. Mm. And he has this hang up about Peter where he says, you're not dad. Um, I don't want my, my dub brother to like fill that role when I want him to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, it's very in the vulnerable. book again. Uh, the, this w- that was never made uh, clear. He's yeah. not necessarily a fighter pilot. They added that for the movie to just uh, to heap extra pressure on the kids, and it's a, it's an inspired decision. Mm. There's also uh, the, when they're saying goodbye at the train station. I noticed this when we watched it. Their mother is particularly. I wouldn't necessarily say affectionate. Affectionate for a given definition of affectionate in Britain in the 40s. Um, but she is she is much more maternal and, like, connecting with Peter and Susan. And I don't think she even says goodbye to Lucy. I don't think mm. we see that happen. I think she, she kind of briefly says something to Edmund, but it's, it's essentially do as your brother tells you. And it did make me wonder if they have a split dynamic in their family where their mother is closer to the older children and their father was closer to the younger ones mm. and therefore they are suffering more for his lack than anybody has really clicked. Mm. Although Peter is also obviously suffering, he just does that suffering in silence thing where he'll never complain about the... He's almost like Aragorn after Gandalf's fall, and he's got that kind of, oh, Christ, now I'm the leader going on. There's a couple of little touches here, just in these opening sections, which are absolutely inspired. The photo is incredibly authentic. It actually comes from the editor of this film, Sim Evan Jones. It's his father. He actually did fly fighter planes during World War II, I believe, mm, yeah. which is quite astonishing considering the uh, the age gap. I believe that's the actual picture. Uh, what does their mother, who in the books was never named but is now called Helen, what does their mother Helen say to Susan? Be a big girl. Be a big girl. Which obviously affects her for this movie but far more than that has a knock-on effect in her later life we'll come to that eventually also peter glancing around sees a young soldier clearly only a biscuit older than him at the station and there's an obvious i should be doing something feeling which is rather familiar if you've studied the works of marcus and mcfeely boy a lot of guys getting killed over there Rogers, Stephen, kind of makes you think twice about enlisting, huh? Nope. I mean, they do 40s very well. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Uh, we also get the music again. I'm going to uh, praise it of Harry Gregson Williams here. And it's got this, it's much more Disney magical than uh, Howard Shaw's kind of more mythological uh, Lord of the Rings. It's. It kind of informs that the, um, the, what you're about to see is maybe less dangerous than what you've seen before. But then when danger does start, it, it, it does kind of have a sort of a rumbling, oh my God, what's this going on? I think one of the important dynamics to remember with this is that the, there is a divide between Narnia and the world the children come from. I can't really call it Earth because it, it's, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't feel like separate planets. Just call it uh, but... 616. <laughs> <laughs> movies, not books. That's yes. Narnia, not movies. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any world can just be called 616 now, just, just for uh, brevity. Yeah. But it does give you that feeling that although there is there is bad stuff going on back in the world they've left, 
but for the most part that world is relatively safe, it's still going to be there. The things that are happening in this world affect them, but there's always that feeling of a back door that they can run out of if they have to. Mm. They stay through choice, and a couple of times they actually have, maybe not quite the option to leave, but they certainly actively consider it. But ultimately there is always that sense that there is a, a, a route out of the situation that they find themselves trapped in. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, this is it. You're not going anywhere. Mm. Sauron is here and will affect absolutely everything that, that you have access to. There is no safe space left, and the few remnants of safe space that there are are also threatened. That's a key element of Lord of the Rings. It's not going to affect their world if Narnia falls, whereas in Lord of the Rings, it will. Mm. There won't yeah. be a Shire for us to go home to. Exactly. Whereas this, they can almost act like it's play and almost even make-believe and that they can stop at any time. They can fool themselves about that. But does mean that their choice to stay and help the Narnians is one of nobility rather than uh, just, well, I've got to because otherwise my home's going to get trashed. And it is paralleled by the war that's going on back home that they are too young to be a part yeah. of. They can't do anything for that, but they can help exactly. here. Exactly, exactly. So there are they are metaphorically connected, but not literally. Mm. The uh, hide-and-seek was something that Adamson uh, said he uh, dreamed up uh, as a way to get Lucy exploring, but that's totally in the BBC one, isn't it? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think they're actively playing hide-and-seek. Oh, no. Lucy runs off and then comes straight back in and says she's just been to Narnia, right. and they're like, oh, poor Lucy, hiding, and nobody even realised you were gone. Right. I think she was just she was just wandering at that okay. point. Yeah, because the original conceit is that they're exploring the big house, yeah. right? But when Lucy steps into the room with the wardrobe, it just... This was part of the trailer, and it, it just stilled me. It, the the, the slow-mo, the music that uh, Gregson plays here, this, you know, the, the flute rising up, and the, just the quiet, tinkling sound of, you know, something is happening here. It's... It's conveying to us, we, the makers of this film, are just as excited as people who read the book when they were kids, that this is now happening, which is a wonderful thing to experience when you have an accord with the people presenting the movie to you. I wrote down that this is maybe the most iconic shot mm. in the franchise mm. when people like will depict Narnia very briefly they'll show a little girl and a wardrobe with the door opening mm. and that is so mundane they're in an empty room it's kind of a fancy wardrobe but it's antiquated it's old this little girl is unassuming there's nothing she's not wearing a crown there's nothing very powerful about the image at all but what it leads to and what it represents and the just just uh, that, that little drop of imagination, it is one of the most iconic images in fantasy. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to the power of, of the idea. You know, go in here, there's another world. I'd say it's uh, juxtaposed with the, uh, the most powerful image in Lord of the Rings is the ring. Just a real close-up on the ring sitting there, needing to be dealt with. Mm. Mm. 
was a masterstroke here of actual production uh, decisions. Uh, Adamson decided that rather than show the actress Georgie Henley, uh, here's the sort of studio we've made up to look like Narnia in winter, blindfolded her and carried her through to her spot and then allowed her to take off the blindfold and then react to what was happening, what was unfolding before her as the... And, and that exploring and all of that wonder as she's looking around, that is absolutely Georgie. Uh, William Mosley pointed out that it's, it, it's baffling to him that so much detail went into the set design, like, you know, the little bits and bobs of uh, uh, Mrs. Beaver's sewing machine and just things like that that, you know, it seemed like no one's going to notice them on screen. And it felt like almost unwarranted that all of this lavish detail was put on show just for the kids completely missing the point William that if it convinces you that you're in Narnia you'll convince us and it worked so well that the few times the CG goes a bit ropey in this it's not necessarily the animals or the mythical beasts or trying to show you massive vistas it's the composite work occasionally you'll see the kids moving around with the camera moving around them and there's like that slight distance removed from where they are because they're actually on a green screen and these shots are almost irritating to me because everything else in the film is telling me they're absolutely there so it's almost like the composite shift is lying to me and trying to tell me that they aren't there so far from being really a mistake it just feels like i know they're there why are you pretending that this is a movie oh wait hang on it is a movie and i think that just that comes down so much to the fact that there's a lot of close-ups of these kids and they are very physically expressive they are, look, we've all seen movies where kids wander through with just vacant eyes not really knowing what's going on and they sort of get bribed in candy bars by the director. These kids really thought about how to convey this. And again, Adamson worked with them individually to bring out the the best, richest performances, which is really, really hard with young actors. That whole thing about never work with animals or kids, never work with CGI animals and have kids as your focal leads. That's a really good point, actually. There are so many scenes in this where I kind of forgot that this was just four kids on a set Yeah, because the apparently adult animals aren't really there. Yeah, they're like uh, uh, James Gunn's rocket raccoon. Either they're a person in a a sort of a full-body green suit crouching behind a stuffed beaver, or there's nothing there at all. Mm. Now, James McAvoy as Tumnus. This, I think, was... Just hearing they're going to make this as a movie, I was like, oh, God, what are they going to do with Tumnus? Because, obviously, when we watched it in 1988, it was like, oh, what a sweet old man with his little goatee beard who's inviting this little girl back to his house. He doesn't have any kind of shifty uh, secondary designs for this particular encounter, does he? If you don't cast it right and if he doesn't perform it right, it's going to be fucking flesh-crawling. Somehow, the fact that James McAvoy is young at the time was relatively unknown and performs everything incredibly authentically. And there's an innocence about him that actually steers you away from that particular dark way of thinking that he's grooming Lucy. And uh, the way Adamson put it, he is 
a citizen of Poland, Nazi-occupied Poland, that has just found a little Jewish girl. That's the energy that's sort of radiating off him. And it's his internal conflict that powers the tension of the next bunch of scenes, rather than just feeling like, get out of here, Lucy, he's a traitor. You feel for him rather than resenting him for lying to her. It's all in his face acting. He's mm-hmm. got this this conflict of, I am not, I haven't told anybody yet. And as a kid, I can kind of get confused on the details. Is he in the pocket? Is he thinking about it? Did they threaten him? You know, but you can see, and he tells you when he's upset that it's something that he's in the middle of doing. Mm. And Lucy invites him to not do it. He's like, oh my gosh, I don't have to do it. And that, that, that frees him. And it, in doing so, it frees her. And they almost get away with it. Yeah. There's also uh, a way of uh, delivery, which uh, I think div- began to develop in the 2000s, because I noticed it more and more as, as time went on. If you compare this with the very received uh, line readings in uh, the BBC series, everything's a little bit too quaint and jolly ho. It's sweet, but it never really feels like they are them. Well, this is delightful. Delightful. I've never seen a human before. Let me introduce myself. My name is Tumnus. And how did you get into Narnia? Narnia? What's that? Why, it's where we are. This is the land of Narnia. All that lies between the lamppost and the great castle of Care Paravel on the Eastern Sea. The castle of what? Yeah, Paravel. I don't think you should worry. There's only one of you. And you. You've come from the wild woods of the West. No. I got into the wardrobe in the spare room. Oh, dear. If only I'd worked harder at geography when I was a little fawn at school. You'll think me very ignorant, but I've never heard of the city of wardrobe, nor the land of spare oom. It's just back there. I think. It's summer there. Winter here. It's been winter in Narnia for ever so long. And we shall both catch cold if we stand here talking in the snow. Oh, daughter of Eve, from the far land of Spare Oom, where eternal summer reigns around the bright city of Wardrobe, <laughs> how would it be if you came and had tea with me? I've never taken tea with the form before. Well then. Really, I suppose I should be getting back. But it's just round the corner, and there'll be toast, and sardines, and cake. But with Tumnus here, he's got goat legs, but the way he's speaking is so personable and so unaffected by attempting to be, I'm a mythical creature, that you kind of buy into it and you're beguiled the same way that, that uh, uh, Lucy is. This also uh, stems from um, Jardis's behaviour with Edmund. Uh, if you compare it to, say, the original Mr. Tumnus, who in, in the BBC version is shifty as hell and immediately untrustworthy, and the witch is a clear, obvious, child-murdering monster, and you're like, Edmund... Are you unintelligent? 
at that point. But um, it also comes across in the way that the kids deli- uh, deliver their lines. This is something I, I noted in Stardust has this as well, because uh, Matthew Vaughan has a particular knack, uh, again, with James McAvoy, with getting people to say things as though they're actually experiencing them and feeling them. And this is something I've actually pursued in my own audiobooks. James McAvoy is not in Stardust. No, but he is in X-Men First Class. Of course, yes. Directed by Matthew Vaughan. All of these films have the slightly more naturalistic delivery of the 2000s. Mm, Yeah, and that naturalistic delivery is even more important when you get to the Narnian world building because, Mm. again, if you make... I mean, it's not the same thing because you're comparing... 1980s British TV. Mm. You at this point just lucky that the rocks weren't made out of cardboard. They do their best on a <laughs> tiny budget. <laughs> Indeed, here's like, five. All, they don't have CG, but they do have a set of watercolor pencils. Mm. Um, but the 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 difference in delivery between the sort of slightly nibbly. Beavers. Beavers. <laughs> and the, the fact Ray that, Winstone and Dawn French yeah, is, is the, like, we're actual beavers. The mythical creatures in the movie, the, the delivery being so naturalistic, Narnia just feels like a world mm. which is peopled. It's just that the people happen to be talking animals and, yeah. and mythical creatures for the most part. After watching the BBC first and then seeing this brand new in 2005, I was like, wait, they're actual beavers? <laughs> <laughs> not just not giant people but in furry barrels yeah these weird people beaver things mm. but yeah the just little things like the way um uh susan says we're from finchley which if you live in england and have any knowledge of london is just a very it's like saying we're from paramus new jersey it's so kind of oh that slams it back to reality that that the word finchley is never in the original book uh, but anna popwell actually did live in finchley so it just it, it just felt like we have no business being from here. We're from the real mundane world. But that We're brings queens. mundanity into this world, which makes it itself feel real, which is a strange contradiction. Two other things uh, about this uh, early section and the beavers. Uh, I always wanted there to be a Magician's Nephew film for many, many reasons anyway. Just uh, imagining how Tilda Swinton would kill it as the uh, younger, even more explosive Jardis. And just the whole charm side of that. We'll talk about that on some later show. But I wanted the cabbie to be played by Ray Winstone so that... He kind of brought that accent into Narnia with him. And then, ever since then, beavers have all talked like this. It just felt like, <laughs> ah, that would make sense. I love dams, Peter. Oh, I love them. I love goldfish. <laughs> Tumnus, I think, when we saw it there the first time, I thought that Tumnus was so old he'd remembered Narnia in summer a hundred years ago. This version, being played by James McAvoy, makes me think that he had, in fact, received stories about what Narnia was like, but much like Game of Thrones, it's very much a a winter that just goes on and on through lifetimes, and he is not a sweet summer child, he is a winter fawn. I do think you could take it either way, because yes, it is entirely possible that he has literally never known what spring and summer are like in Mm. Narnia, and all he's known is this winter, but he he does have a couple of lines that do suggest that he's been around in this for a long old time. Mm. Like he, I think he says to Lucy that she's the nicest person he's met in a hundred years or mm. something like that. They do. Uh, there is a line in The Horse and His Boy that says that uh, Tumnus, who then becomes Lucy's royal advisor, is getting on a bit in years mm. and starting to grey. And it's that's only, what, 
eight to ten years after this, so that would suggest to me, since James McAvoy is still what I would call relatively young, uh, that he ages like a, a person. Mm, yeah, or like an elf, maybe. So they're a particular age for a, very, like a very long time, and then absolutely they get fine, really like a old, rock and really then mush. quick. <laughs> ripe and ripe and ripe and ripe and ripe and ha ha ha. Well, the perspective is sad no matter how you look at it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He, he, he has a sort of a, a desperate need to to transcend this this grip of winter. Yeah, if he was around for the last summer, then that's still 100 years of, of winter. Yeah. And if he has never seen a summer before, that's still 100 years of winter. Yeah. And I'll go back to the thing I said about Nazi-occupied Poland. This is baby's first Hitler or specifically Baby's First Fascist, it feels like you could look at Star Wars, which came obviously way after this, and go, oh, the Empire are kind of like Nazis. They're literally also, their troops are called stormtroopers. And obviously, Vader is based on a Gestapo agent. But this really dwells on little people in a frozen grip of a fascist autocracy. The... Uh, the witch won't allow anything to change and everyone is frightened. I would say there's a very obvious reason for the distinction between the two. Star Wars and the Empire is America's view of the Nazis. Mm. From a distance, on a movie screen, we get the aesthetic, but we don't really get the feel and the guts of what they were Mm. doing. This is a European perspective on that, living in it, sitting in it, seeing it every day. Mm. And just after it. Yeah. 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 So it felt like uh, Lewis was, okay, so how do we explain what just happened to kids who were maybe a little bit too young to really understand five years ago? Mm. This is what was being attempted. And it's a really authentic version of the frozen grip of fascist rule. It's, It's just so unconducive to change to individualism, to personality, to fearlessness, to art, to joy. Mm-hmm. It's antithetical to everything that is good about being a human being. Yeah, and that insistence as well, that it has always been this way and it will always been this way. It's entirely possible that this winter has not been going on for 100 years, but the witch has told everybody it has yeah. and that it will continue ad infinitum. Yeah. Oh, I should go. It's too late for that now. Such a terrible fall. Oh no. You're the nicest fawn I've ever met. And I'm afraid you've had a very poor sampling. You can't have done anything that bad, eh? It's not something I have done, Lucy Pevensey. It's something I am doing. What are you doing? Kidnapping you. It was the White Witch. She's the one who makes it always winter, always cold. She gave orders. If any of us had to find a human wandering in the woods, we're supposed to turn it over to her. But Mr. Thomas, you wouldn't. <laughs> I thought you were my friend. It's always, uh,. Frustrating when Lucy comes out of the wardrobe and her uh, siblings disbelieve her. And I, I love the fact that they juxtapose that by having the older kids 
talk to the professor and him schooling them in logic in a kind of a, okay, right. And this is, they, they, they almost breeze over these uh, lines in the film because Broadbent handles them in such an easy fashion and is so sparky and interested in what's going on as opposed to the slightly uh, dismissive professor uh, as written in the book. Uh, the girl in question never makes stuff up that she insists is real. That's not what she does. She also is a very truthful girl and never lies. And one can see just by looking at her that she is not mad. Ergo, logically, she must be telling the truth. Susan counters that with, yeah, but she was only in the wardrobe for a few minutes. And, you know, she says she claims she was there for an afternoon, which, to his mind, corroborates her story rather than confounding it. It's the whole, why don't they teach children logic in these schools? This is one of my favorite lines ever. Mm, yeah. Oh, well, in this, it's what do they teach in the, these schools? Yeah. But why don't they teach logic is a really great way of saying, use your cheese box. Does this person have something to gain from lying to you? Which can help in both directions. If they're on the internet telling you how to get rich quick, but only if you join their seminar for $2,000, they're lying to you. Because logically, one must assume they have discovered how to exploit desperation. But also, the kind of logic that Professor Kirk is able to employ is a multidimensional kind of logic mm. that the average person would not think oh, yeah. of. Susan, at this yeah. point, is thinking like a very normal person. Yeah, nobody would blame her in our cold reality mm. with what she's saying, but... The professor's logic is more of a people's logic. It's like, all right, put aside the science. Let's not talk about that right now. Let's talk about who she is. And let's talk about who Edmund is. And if you know anything about these two kids, which one are you more inclined to lean towards? Yeah. They have a choice in this regard rather than simply you believe or disbelieve Lucy because effectively you also have Edmund's testimony, which you're told from Lucy's point of view, should corroborate her story, but he in fact goes in the opposite direction and says it was just a game, which upsets her even more. Indeed. And the other approach that uh, the professor takes to it as well is the extension of the once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever's left, however improbable, must be the truth. We've been watching a lot of Sherlock recently, and I do wonder what Sherlock <laughs> would have made of this particular story. I mean, he would have, I think he would have jumped to the conclusion that the girl genuinely believes she did see this, mm. which points to a delusion yeah, and brought on by something in the wardrobe. Well, possibly, or simply the fact that she has been. She was high on mothballs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think Susan's assumption is that Lucy has been seriously upset by the fact that they've had to relocate mm -hmm. and that that's what's causing her to make up this story. Yeah. It, it's not an irrational assumption mm. from somebody who is trying to be a lot older and more educated than Susan actually is. Yeah. And now to the White Witch. We've jumped uh, back and forth a little bit because Edmund also gets into Narnia. And uh, unfortunately, his first port of call is a lot less warm than Lucy's. Barbara Kellerman, who played the original White Witch on the BBC TV version, played it extremely broad, very straightforward, angry villain that every child watching would immediately mistrust and be scared of. And she was just right for the tone of that particular show. Watching her now is laughable 
but I think almost she'd invite that in a kind of a, it's supposed to be big and huge uh, so that you can kind of go, what are you doing, Edmund? And what, pray, are you? Uh, um, my name's Edmund. Is that how you address a queen? I beg your pardon, I didn't know. Your Majesty. Not know the Queen of Narnia? You shall know us better hereafter. <laughs> well, answer my question, what are you? Please, Your Majesty, uh, I, d I don't know what you mean. I'm at school, uh, at least I was. It's the holidays now. But what are you? What are you? Are you a great overgrown dwarf that has cut off his beard? Oh no, Your Majesty. I've never had a beard. I'm a boy. <gasps> a boy? Do you mean you are a son of Adam? I see you are an idiot, whatever else you may be. Answer my question once and for all or I shall lose my patience. Are you human? Oh, yes, Your Majesty. And how, pray, did you come to enter my dominions? Please, Your Majesty, I came in through the wardrobe. What do you mean? Indeed. And, and as I noticed today, in fact, the, the idea that that version of Jardis could run Narnia is ridiculous. She couldn't keep a country going for more than a couple of months. Ginnabrick is smarter yeah. than her. That's something we, while we were doing it, the fact that Ginnabrick is very Yorkshire, played by Big Mick in the uh, uh, 80s version, and Kieran Shah in this. It's really difficult to imagine someone who's salt of the earth and comes from Yorkshire waiting hand and foot on a woman like this who's a great big prima donna running about the place, drinking herself after death on Saturdays, sat there with a ball of chunky monkey on Sundays, crying into it. How the hell's she... Who the hell's cleaning up her mess? I'll tell you, Muggins is right here. And so we sort of came up with a, a much more uh, disgruntled version of uh, her as-yet-unnamed dwarf in uh, uh, the book and TV show, but eventually named Ginnabrick so that he can relate forwards to a later character called Nickabrick in Prince Caspian. It just, it feels like, as you say, she is not together. She is not really good at organising stuff. The only thing that you can really um, point to is Hitler was also a rabid maniac. Yes. He had a lot of lieutenants who were scared shitless. Indeed. And she's got that black hair that's kind of plastered down. Yeah. She doesn't have the moustache, but... You know, the hair. Right. But the, there is also a little bit of a sense of... And I don't think this really plays through with Tilda Swinton, although it's kind of there in the background. But that feeling of... And I think it's outright said at one point by Mrs Beaver, she believes she has the right to be queen in Narnia because she claims she is descended from humans, which she's not. Mm. So there is also this sort of human supremacy thing going on. This was the first big role I'd seen Tilda Swinton in. I think the first time I actually saw her ever was probably Vanilla Sky. She plays the uh, red-headed lady who runs Aperture Science at the end. Everyone tells me how much fun Constantine is, but when I went back to it, it was not, except 
Tilda Swinton as the angel Gabriel, who is this kind of, like at one point she's standing on Constantine uh, with, with bare feet and just sort of, you know, she has cops very similar officious attitude to what she does here. This is kind of her role of a lifetime. She is absolutely on the cold version of fire here as the White Witch. She is encapsulating one of the greatest literary and on-screen villains of all time who preys upon children and is believably manipulative with alternating warmth and emotional distance. Like, she makes herself available to Edmund and then pulls away in a way that an abusive, manipulative parent would. She is insidious. And, again, this really sort of worked in my mind as they have really done their homework on how to convey this in the the most how-would-this-actually-be way with none of the uh, almost pantomime shouting of, of Kellerman, who, again, was just right for that particular role and also scared the shit out of me, so she did her job. Indeed. I am eager to know all about you. You are here alone. There are no... Others with you? I'm not sure, Your Majesty. I have just sister. Well, in fact, I have a brother and two sisters. Two, three, four... <gasps> four! Mm. And where are they, these other three humans? Can't say for sure. I should so much like to see your brother and sisters. You must bring them to me. All right, I'll try. Because if you brought them to me, I should give you more Turkish delight. Oh, give it to me now. But I can't. The magic will work only once. It would be another matter if you were in my house. My magic house. I want to go there now. I want more Turkish delight. It is a lovely place, my house. Except for one thing. I have no children. I would so much like a nice boy I could bring up as a prince. He would be king of Narnia when I'm gone. He would wear a gold crown and eat Turkish delight all day long. And as you are much the cleverest and handsomest young man I have ever met, I wish to make you the prince. When? You bring the others to visit me. I could bring them another time. But once in my house you will forget everything. No, 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 no. Can't I have just one piece of Turkish delight to eat on my way home? No! No. But also, considering who Edmund's character ends up becoming at the end, Mm. You set him up as stupid now, and mm. you have lost that completely. Yeah. So but it has to be believable that he would be drawn in by yeah. this. It's a trap as well. Like she, she draws him in, and then leaves him at a point where he can't go back on what he's decided to do. Yeah. It feels much more uh, of a strong pull, and the the way the Turkish delight is set up, both in book 
and every production that I've seen of it, it's practically like freaking heroin. He can't stop thinking about it. What do you think mm-hmm. that powder is? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a neat way of showing that what he's actually relishing is all of this attention and grandiosity circling around him. He rationalizes what he's doing as he gets to be high king of Narnia, which, you know, he could definitely do as long as he gets to, from some goddamn Turkish delight. Uh, and Peter will have to do as he's told. Do as he's told, and it's a, it's a yeah. childish, immature way of thinking. And I like the bit in the BBC version where he has kind of a golem moment. The actor steps outside of himself and tells himself, "You don't really actually believe this is going to go the way you think it is, right? Right?" It's it's a neat little visual moment because in the book mm-hmm. he's just thinking, but here it, it sort of allows the kids at home to go, "Oh, he is." very visually conflicted here. Yeah, but I think the the way it's framed in the film, it has a... uh, There's a a detachment and an observation to it that makes it so that you're you're an adult observing. And I know, obviously, this is obviously a film that was intended to be aimed at children too, but you are an adult watching Edmund be taken in and manipulated. Yeah. And he starts the isolation from his family himself. He takes those first steps away by crapping on Lucy's story, refusing to back her up with the others, um, making everything worse because he's trying to make himself feel superior. And the witch grabs onto all of that and successfully manages to leverage that gap between them in order to pull Edmund away and use him as a, a weapon against the others because mm. obviously she's got this overarching view of how they could wreck her Reich yeah a thousand year winter so um, Narnia fans in America it's uh, kind of a rite of passage to realize oh Turkish delight is a real thing <laughs> it's not <laughs> I have to admit I re- always remember being a little bit baffled as to how the witch knew what it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's aware of turkey. Well, yeah, I I grew up thinking that it was a fantasy food that doesn't exist, and you <laughs> wonder. I wonder what Turkish delight actually would taste like if it were real. It's kind of a firm, rubbery jello, dusted with what you'd call powdered sugar, and flavored traditionally with rose water, lemon, almonds, or mint. And the difference between the cheap stuff and the really good stuff is quite substantial. And I'd imagine the enchanted stuff's even better. There that, are re- so. <laughs> there are unfortunately some slight recurring themes of oh, you want to stay away from Turkey and that kind of region, uh, specifically in later books that uh, uh, Lewis wrote. But luckily, in this, Turkish delight is innocuous enough for people watching to go. Yeah, I've eaten Turkish delight. I would literally shop in all my siblings just for a box full <laughs> of the really good stuff. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love the way that Ginnabrick also, like, when he gets rid of all of the uh, Turkish delight, is like, and just eats a little bit. Kieran Shah, by the way, uh, started out in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was the kid who bought the dates that the monkey ate and then died. Uh, but he was also Frodo's scale double in Lord of the Rings. So every time you see a hobbit scampering away who's supposed to be Frodo and it's slightly too far away to really see his face, that's Kieran in a Frodo mask. Am I wrong? Is he also in, like... The the new Johnny Depp Willy Wonka? No, no. It's Deep Roy. I actually met Deep Roy in a gym one time, and I so stupidly said, "Oh, you were in Lord of the Rings." And he went, "No, I wasn't." 
<laughs> and, but he said, but I am in the new uh, Willy Wonka. And I went, oh, no, hang on. You're Deep Boy. I know exactly who you are. And I was very respectful, and I did not condescend as much as I could. But obviously he gets told, oh, you were in Lord of the Rings a lot of the time. It's on his <laughs> Wikipedia page. It's on, it's on Kira Shah's no, no. I wasn't in Lord that of the Rings. he always gets mixed up with Deep Boy. Yeah. Okay. Wow. But, uh, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're both fantastic. Mm. Oh, and uh, recently I think Kieran Shah was actually in Andor. So he's still working. Oh, awesome. Um, one just small point about the Turkish delight as well. If you put that in the uh, in the, the chronological context, the fact that it was really difficult to get exotic sweets or anything unusual in Britain in in London particularly yeah. during the war. I mean, well, I say in London particularly. Like you weren't going to get that stuff in Gloucester either. But you know what I mean. <laughs> Things that they had maybe been able to have as occasional treats in the past would have been completely off the table during the war. A couple of other little things I noticed. Uh, Peter's clothes looked too big for him. And uh, although the kids actually did grow up during the uh, course of filmmaking so that their outfits at the beginning wouldn't necessarily fit them at the end, uh, I, I don't know whether it was intentional, but it looks like... Peter himself is going through a growth spurt, so his mother has given him some of his father's trousers and one of his father's shirts, and they're held up with suspenders or braces in the UK, and they're slightly too baggy for him, which is a a wonderful visual way to uh, exemplify how he has been given too much burden of leadership too early. And also that Susan is an obstinate snoot, a little bit too much too early. They they have to work hard to make sure that Anna Popper World still sort of comes back from that with a, a sweetness, a kind of a, a yearning that she herself steps on far too much. Also noteworthy, Morgrim, played here by uh, Michael Madsen. You gonna bark all day, little doggy, or you gonna bite? He's scary as a wolf. The BBC version, somehow, this is the only thing they do better slash worse is he's scarier in the sh- in the shonky like smeary video version as a yogurt pot no as a dude wandering around in a very big furry halloween costume like a, like a cheap fursuit for for modern day fursuit folks aficionados of of the much better quality stuff that the bbc couldn't afford or even conceive of in those days with like this this nose that makes him look ridiculous but the actor is so daniel day lewis intense that he made me shit my britches and i've been terrified of lycanthropes since i'm so glad that you said this because (laughs) when uh on the on the bbc tapes that i watched they would end the first tape with the letter uh, uh, proclaiming what Mr. Tumnus's crime. Oh yeah, and it's signed by the the head wolf. And <laughs> you guys know he like roars, and it was so scary. <laughs> I was like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. The fawn Tumnus is under arrest and awaiting trial on a charge of high treason. Against Her Imperial Majesty, Jardis, Queen of Narnia, Chatelaine of Care Paravel, Empress of the Lone Islands, etc. Also of comforting Her Majesty's enemies, of harboring spies, and, above all, of fraternizing with humans. Signed by me, Morgrim, Captain of the Secret Police. Long live the Queen! 
scariest thing about that? That was how episode 2 ended, and I had no access to the book. Someone, it seems, had taken it out of the school library for the entire six-episode duration, and my parents were not the kind to just buy me books. And I had a week to wait to see what would happen, and it's like, right, we're going to leave you with this guy just screaming right in your face. And then they play that wonderful, wonderful theme, which is so haunting and sticks with me. So that all I had to do is hear the first few bars. Let's play it for you now, folks. So this left me hanging on tenterhooks for at least seven days. And there's a reason that the lions in my cat books are England and generally characterized as villainous colonials. Because of how important Narnia and the Lion King were in my childhood and teenage years, it hurts to think of them this way. The symbol of Africa, stolen, reappropriated, slapped on a flag by white empires. But as a wolf here, a CGI wolf, he's scary, but it's almost like he's like, oh, we're tired. Like, he's a lot less mortally terrifying to me as an adult, maybe. I don't know, maybe just because Michael Madsen's voice sounds oddly comforting. Also, as you've got older, you've probably figured out that wolves are not half as bad as they're painted in stories. Yeah. Also that wolves are less uh, scary than werewolves. This guy was unhinged. Yeah. It's worth noting that uh, when Morgrim and his wolf boys close in on the beaver's house, it pans up to a vertical shot of all of them sort of hanging around this big damn igloo type thing. And they had to CGI out these good boys' tails because they looked so happy. And they had to add much more motionless and, and sort of hanging limp or irritably swiping tails to make them actually seem like they were malevolent because these were just too good as boys. And they were having the time of their life, which is great. You love to hear that uh, about uh, dogs that help out on film sets. I love how many how many real animals were used. Yeah. Like when I'm looking at that, that wolf chase, 
I'm like, oh, those are real. Mm. <laughs> you know, and they they've they've tampered with things like the tales, as you say, but it's very convincing fantasy. It's, yeah, it's, you, you don't it's really notice good. that. I have I'm having to literally set the scene so people can uh, see the one tiny break which isn't real. This is why just going out of their way to add practical where they could was just an inspired decision and absolutely it stemmed from similar productions like Lord of the Rings. When Tumnus plays that Narnian lullaby, Harry Gregson William came on set and actually played the song he'd composed for that particular moment and everyone's spine tingled. So we got a really authentic version of that scene. And when Aslan is dead on the stone table uh, later on, the two girls got given a mortifying literally incredibly upsetting dead lion to cry over rather than just, uh, here's a green sack, we'll CGI him in later. So that, so everything that comes out of them is absolutely entirely authentic for, uh, for making you feel like they're actually there and they're actually, in this case, mourning something that's too beautiful almost to live. And Adamson was very careful with the kids. He didn't upset them on purpose to make them cry. At one point he needed Lucy to cry and he himself was trying to cry so that she would empathize with him. But it turned out in the end, Anna Popperwell can cry on cue. And so convincingly that she uh, she got Georgie into that state of mind. And, and getting people upset is something I've had to do as a director myself. It requires care going in and it requires care coming out. It's a very intense and kind of intimate scenario when you're directing someone like that. Yeah, Georgie is very convincing in that scene. In particular, there's a there's a way that she sobs that just sounds so authentic and heartbreaking. Yeah. Like this is a child in despair. Yeah. It's a helplessness. Mm. It's a it's I'm so small at this point, which is why the whole the mice are a neat juxtaposition there because they're so much smaller even than everything else. And yet they can do something. Yeah. It might even if it seems like it it, it, It might be pointless, but it's something. Susan is very quick to point out there and at every step of the way where something is useless and pointless and like they they bit uh, Aslan's ropes off so he's no longer bound to the table, but they don't even know he's dead. The fools, foolish mice. And when Lucy goes to her cordial to try to see if she can bring him back to life uh susan says no it's too late and at that point lucy should just say it's magic susan i'm just gonna go (laughs) ahead and try it anyway i think it's worth a few drops but the fact that she doesn't is almost itself informing on the reality that she's looking to susan as guidance that Susan is standing in for their mother at this point. And so she doesn't when she probably should. Similarly, at the end, uh, Diggory, uh, the professor, says, don't bother trying to go back into the wardrobe. It won't work. I've tried. At which point Lucy could go, yeah, you've tried. You're like, what, 70? I'm 55, (laughs) cheeky young. (laughs) But uh, she, she allows people to tell her what's what about the world. It's not necessarily a weakness on Lucy's part, but it does illustrate how flexible she is as a person. Well, she won't stubbornly refuse to do something. Yeah, a lot of It these... takes uh, the disbelief of her uh, siblings in Prince Caspian to make her go, you know what, I am holding to this. Mm. You didn't believe me before, you're going to believe me now. A lot of these elements are 
that they are reinforcing who they are as characters and ultimately as the youngest sibling Lucy is used to well what Peter says to Edmund doing as she's told Mm. it it a lot of the time genuinely doesn't occur to her to question what she's been told by adults and by older siblings because she's so used to them being right and I think the way the dynamic is set up because this whole sort of the 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 siblings where two of them are very distinctly older is a a mimicry of a nuclear family Mm. and the way susan behaves and this pouring cold water on things more often than not i actually think there's a really valuable line in this which i don't recall being in the book and isn't in the bbc version where susan apologizes for that and the fact that she can recognize that her being dismissive of the the magic of the world that at this point is all around them. Why are you still insisting magic isn't a thing, Susan? Just look. Hmm. And it's... Susan wants to contain it. Yeah, and I don't... Make it more easy to cope with the things that are and the things Absolutely. that aren't. Absolutely, and a, a big part of who she is is that she is constantly trying to be this adult woman, and in her mind, that's what adult women do. They break up the imaginative they insist on the practical they make sure that everything is going to work because to hold a family together in an extremely difficult situation it sometimes feels like that's what's required but it's more dangerous long term than peter having this sort of authoritative everybody do what i say because you're undermining the creativity of the younger kids and their ability to potentially come up with solutions to get out of things that you as an older person wouldn't even dream of at the extreme end of that desperation for control is the white witch absolutely you've got that frozen fascism of i will tell you what is and what isn't yeah and i I don't want to go too long to the point where no one can tell her it's a thaw or indeed spring absolutely while it's obviously melting all around her absolutely and i don't want to go too down that line of discussion because there is more to say about susan later on oh yeah and she's not a fascist this is the beginning of it and it and it is it comes out of this belief of what is the real world and clinging to that in a way that I think Susan is treated very harshly in the books and I think a big part of that is because Lewis was so dismissive of the attitude that she cops. Yeah. It might possibly even be his perspective on this is how ladies think. He mm. was quite dismissive of women. Maybe in, so. in terms well, of adult women and their their role in stuff. I want to turn it back to Lucy for a second coming from that thought because one of my favorite things about the book, about this movie, about the story is that Lucy is never positioned as annoying. Mm -hmm. She's never positioned as somebody not to take seriously on the audience's part. We are, yeah, we, yeah, we are always with her. She's positioned, I mean, for a majority, if not the entire story as the main character where yeah, where that would normally go to, like, you could see Peter having it, or you could see, like, Edmund as the tortured mm. as the tortured soul, or, you know, or, or Susan as the matriarch. But it is 
the child. And it's because this story was written for a young audience. And it's because I think um, C.S. Lewis is rather fond of the character. At the very beginning of the oh, yeah. book, before before the title page, uh, he does dedicate it to a Lucy. I don't nice. know very much about this real Lucy. Um, <laughs> I, I remember he says, by the time this book is out, you'll be too old for it anyway. But here it is. I finally <laughs> done it. That's um, sweet. I think it is great how many female characters are in this story hmm. um, because you've got Lucy and Susan. You, your main antagonist is uh, the white wit. Yeah, Jardis. And um, I, I think it's a very – there's no romance. There's It doesn't necessarily pass a Bechdel test, but they are all very strong and they're all very unique from each other. Hmm. And they all have their own um, wants and goals and they're all very well portrayed. And this is coming from a book, you know, from the 40s. Yeah. Uh, I just, I I think that that's really special uh, for, for a story like this. Yeah. One of the bits from the book that was excised from the film because it just wouldn't have a place is a section where a bunch of woodland creatures are having a tea party. <laughs> and the uh, white witch drives past in her sleigh and she's like, what the fuck is this? And they go, uh, where did you get this stuff? We were given it. This is contraband. Eventually, they try to convince her that it's Father Christmas, which of course means that her power is fading because it's always winter but never Christmas. And she inflicts wrath upon them in front of Edmund, cruelly, by turning them all to stone. This section, as in, in the, uh, the BBC one, is really sad and shocking. In the book, it's even worse because... Edmund now is forced to think about these animals and how they're not alive anymore and how they will simply abide here in this secluded place as statues until even their faces wear away. And I was like, as a kid, I read that and my eyes went like saucers and I was like, and it just, it felt really hard. But if this is baby's first fascist, you have to see these simple people who were doing nothing wrong be punished for it in a fatal fashion, nonetheless. Mm, yeah, and the the way it's sold in the BBC version as well, and this only occurred to me today, but it makes the White Witch come across as very puritanical because mm. the emphasis that she puts on she's like it's she's it's excess it. to her this is this is indulgent and gluttony you're eating cake and, yeah and the fact that she's this like total anti-christmas christmas is not going to happen mm. and it really did make me feel like she's anti-joy this yeah the 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 people at the upper levels of fascistic organisations do tend to indulge themselves mm. but they are very very critical of it in people further down the ladder or else they live almost monastic existences and refuse to accept and that other people have to as well to do the same, yeah. this is one of the major faults of uh, Thomas Arlington it's that he lives in a certain obsessive way and as far as he's concerned if we're going to survive everyone has to be as obsessed as I am mm. that is too much to ask of people that uh, scene gets kind of adapted into this movie with the fox. Yeah. Played by Rupert um, Everett, which completely threw Willow out. They were like, that's Prince Charming. I can't take this seriously. <laughs> I, I understand him to be a completely original character to this movie, but 
in the the space of two minutes. You're like, all right. I first I didn't know who this was. Now I trust this guy. Now I love this guy. Now he's dead. But you get that same effect with Edmund because he even tries to defend this fox's life, and it doesn't work out. Not only does he uh, sell out where his siblings have gone and that there is an army, but now the fox is dead anyway. And so you've got this really cold lesson of, like, sometimes you can't negotiate with crazy people. Ah, nice of you to drop in. You were so helpful to my wolves last night. Perhaps you can help me now. Forgive me, Your Majesty. Oh, don't waste my time with flattery. Not to seem rude, but I wasn't actually talking to you. That's not in the original book. That is a really neat way of reminding you Edmund has a responsibility already. Yeah. Ultimately, the humans here are not to be made a big fuss of, or even though the Narnians do, they're there to help, to lead, mm. to. This is where I get the most monarchistic. Uh, which is where you're presented with entirely altruistic monarchies that are there to serve the people and are noble and wise and thoughtful. And they, uh, in, in, it's especially nicely balanced here because rather than it just being one person in charge, despite Peter being called the High King, it's divided out, that power. Yeah, they, they are effectively what's being appointed here is not a monarch, but a council. Mm. And they are... You're absolutely right that it's their their responsibility and their obligation as much as it is their their gift and their mm. reward. They are pieces that are being placed into a bigger puzzle. Yeah. One of the other key elements of this scene in terms of Edward's personal journey is that you get to see him going from doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, where he sells out his siblings, mm. to here doing the wrong thing as in revealing to the queen where the others are yeah. for the right reason to try to save to try a fox and protect the animals mm. and then eventually he goes through all of that to do the right thing for the right reasons mm. and then gets seriously injured for it and again like an abuser she sadistically turns the fox to stone and says that was your fault to Edmund. He's, she does the same thing with Tumnus when he's been horrifically tortured off screen, by the way. If you noticed, he's got like this swollen mouth because they've pulled his fucking teeth out. His horns oh have been filed down. He's, he can't walk. One assumes he had both his legs broken and his hooves turned to stone. I got kids here. <laughs> but at the same time, they're very serious about, this is what fascists do. They hurt you. Because that's the point. Absolutely. Cruelty and for they cruelty's absolutely sake. Absolutely will turn.
turn you against each other. Yeah. Because that because is how they keep yeah. hold of those strings of power. Their biggest enemies are unity and genuine hope that they can be overcome. And also the opposition to them telling people how the world is and other people going, no, it's not. Yeah. The world's always been this way. No, no it it's hasn't. not. It's always going to be this way. No, no it's, it's not. not. Uh, also, Father Christmas turns up here. Many times throughout his books, uh, Lewis says, an aside to the reader, saying something along the lines of, this probably would have sounded really silly if you just read it on paper, but take it from me, it was a really serious, somber, and at the same time, joyful affair. Like, he, he really tries to sort of put across a certain midpoint between being too silly just to sort of break the mood and being too serious so that you're totally self-serious all the time. It's a nice balance that he manages to maintain. His books are funny. My favorite fantasy books, I have another favorite, uh, The Tale of Despero by mm. Kate DeCamelo. They level with the reader and they're like, listen, I'm telling this story and this is how it is and it's fun. <laughs> I, I like the, the dialogue between reader mm. and writer. And I will maintain that strange men riding on sledges, distributing swords, is no basis for a system of government. But, again, there's such altruism to this, and it's such a kind of a, this is a noble responsibility you're being given, much like the Lion King. It's, it's what we all want the monarchy to be in our heads, what Britain tells itself their monarchy is. It's, I suppose, to an extent, it's... And always has been. Uh, but what about always has been? The monarchy could have to have been when you really didn't have any kind of structure to have any other option. And let's the Arthur not forget, legend. though, the, this whole idea that the monarchy is this fixed family that never changes. No, they used to throw them over all the time and put pretenders on the throne mm. and someone else from a different branch of the family and blah blah But it is of benefit to Tudors and Sturts to say, the Sturts are in charge now and that's God's will. God put us in charge. Can't argue with him, can you? And we plan on being here for, ooh, a thousand years. Anyway. We know the Tudors weren't always in charge. You just invented them. Father Christmas here is played by James Cosmo, the old bear who you may remember from Game of Thrones. Lovely performance as someone who is has got a little bit of a twinkle in his eye. It's almost like he's a character in uh, a video game who gives you all the stuff you need to then move on with the next part of your quest. So he, t he, he doesn't exactly take them through a tutorial. Either that or he's Narnian Q branch, and he's like, you're definitely going to need this, this, and this <laughs> as you uh, continue on your adventure, 007. I have a question. Yes. Did he have a package of stuff for Edmund just in case? Mm. Because presumably when all of this came about, they didn't know that Edmund was going to go and do the thing. I would like to think that after the coronation, Edmund got a visit from Father Christmas who went, you're on my naughty list, Edmund, nothing for you. <laughs> like they've got symbols above their thrones, uh, like the sword for Peter and the lion of, of Aslan, the bow for uh, uh, Susan and uh, Lucy's uh, magical bottle of uh, healing juice. And Edmund's, I'm assuming, just a big old chunk of Turkish delight and an arrow. <laughs> 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 well, Father I, Christmas. I, I love the fact that they don't call him Santa Claus as well. It's it's right. definitely rooting back to something very old. When Aslan has retrieved Edmund, he's been saved, and he has this private uh, conversation with him that nobody hears, and we never really know what is going on. 
I read that as an analog for um, confession, uh, mm. the, this, this, that, the sacrament in the Catholic Church, because he has the he has a, a, a reconciliation. Really, his offenses are hashed out with Aslan, and when he comes, when they come back, Aslan says, "What happened has happened. Let's not talk about it. It's it, it's 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 under the bridge. It still." You know, it it has consequences. The actions have consequences, but we're not going to hold that against him. And they really stick to that actions has consequences thing because if within the runtime of this movie, he does miss the a, a gift from from Father Christmas, mm. and he could have gotten you know a magical item that would help him out uh, in situations uh specific to him and his abilities but he wasn't there because of the choices that he made that's not to say that now that he has made things right with himself that he uh can't ever get a gift again but in that moment he lost out that time with his siblings he lost out on um a nobility in himself that he has regained i enjoy that um the commitment there to you messed up it's okay but you missed something because of that. Mm. And I, I love that take. And there's actually, I think, an extension of that further on that is not, is even more subtle. After certain events have taken place, uh, when Lucy says to Susan, do you think he knows? Do you think Edmund knows what was done for him? Mm. And Susan says, oh, no, no, think about it. If it was you, would you want to know? Mm. But it's Susan who says it, and therefore we know Suspect. Susan has a tendency to pour cold water on things. Yeah. Personally, I absolutely think Edmund knows. He has to know. Considering what this is a metaphor for, mm-hmm. he has to know. Otherwise, what's the point? Also, what, what he actually did get a gift from this particular ordeal, and that's wisdom based on failure. He failed yeah. big time, yeah. and, and he winds up as the smart one of their of his four siblings. I was just going to say there is a siblings. reason why he is considered to be the he's he's called Edmund the Just, and he's considered mm-hmm. to be the wise one. And if anybody seeks guidance, they come to him, not Peter. He's also quieter and more reserved than his brother, so he also learned not to be quite such an awful little shit. Yes, indeed. But you're right; it's it's as a direct result of what he goes through and what he mm. is obliged to see that the others don't see yeah fascism really close <laughs> in the book father christmas also gives the beavers like tea and crumpets and fish and like i think lewis says oh he pulled it out of his bag and the kids wondered how and it's like we can't do that on film <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah here's a kettle popping hot what the hell have you got in that sleigh all of the decisions i think that they made to to, to add on to this to uh and to subtract from it's specifically the things it removes from the book when uh, Father Christmas is being asked, can we be in the battle? In the book, he says, battles are ugly when women fight. In the BBC version, what does he say? He says, battles are ugly places. Oh, no, no, no. He's, he does say battles are ugly places. But then he says to Lucy, and anyway, there'll be work for you after mm, the battle after is done. Which is true. And in uh, the film, he says, battles are ugly affairs. Mm. But he doesn't specifically say, no women. Yeah. Which is a neat way of moving point, that forward. He's communicating to children who are, on some level, quite aware of the fact mm. that battles are ugly whoever is participating in them. Also, specifically, uh, someone who says battles are ugly when women fight has not seen the film Wonder Woman. 
Ice flow sequence. I think they they added that here, where uh, the, the kids end up going straight into the uh, frozen river and should, in fact, die of hypothermia. But um, they don't because it's a magical fall. Uh, but this isn't in the book either. It feels like there was they, they needed to make the cross Narnia trek more of an adventure before they get to the stone table, as opposed to they walk and then they're there. <laughs> That's a bad problem in other books. Mm. Yeah, there is Where's very Caspian? much. Yeah, there is very much a recurring thing throughout the Narnia books of the children go for a nice Sunday walk and then things happen. Which book did I say? Oh, but it was all absolutely fine. No one was in danger. And I, that irritated me. Oh, it was The Hobbit. Tolkien uh, was fairly intent on telling kids there should be no tension. Everything was fine. Mm -hmm. And at the end, a whole bunch of dwarves get killed off camera while Bilbo's asleep. And it's like, yeah, battles are ugly affairs. Mm -hmm. Although that could be interpreted as a, a certain perspective of, well, as long as you're getting your meals and everything's going fine, all this shit can go on mm. off, off out of your attention and you'll never realise how bad it was. Though I can completely understand, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, both of whom were in World War I, trench warfare, where we created hell on earth, not wanting to give children nightmares by recounting battles a little too vividly. If they're after the fact, you can hold them at arm's length for safety. However, Isis Musenden's best costume work comes into play with Jardis here. Her dress thaws. It starts out in the uh, ice palace, very blue, very high-necked, very haughty, with a very tall spire of ice as her crown, which then gets smaller and her shoulders become bare as effectively this snow sloughs off her until eventually she's in kind of this straw-like springtime look which she seems quite uncomfortable in mm. and to kind of accentuate her look and to remind everyone that she's still in control even if all the snow's gone she puts a lion-shaped crown helmet over her head when she's all in that chariot pulled by polar bears looking like Bodicea and she's wearing Aslan's mane as a mantle just as a, as a trophy, like he is my defeated foe. That is gut churning. And at no point do you stop believing Tilda Swinton will happily kill children. Indeed. My favorite element of this steadily changing costume, by the way, is actually quite a subtle one. It's the first stage of the melting. Her dress turns gray. Mm. It turns yes. into slush. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too. I noticed uh, the mane for the first time watching it for this, and I was like, oh my gosh, is she wearing the mane? Oh yeah. That is so metal. <laughs> Meanwhile, she uh, thrashes Edmund to death with Aslan's tail that she also took as a souvenir. When I first saw this film, 
I was of the mind that the only problem I had with it is that Aslan is too small. When they meet him, he seems almost more like a real lion than Lewis goes into detail over and over again to say Narnian animals are considerably bigger than regular animals from uh, our world, and Aslan would be bigger still, being divine. And it just felt like he was almost too real. And also that his voice, uh, played by Liam Neeson here, was too soft and didn't really boom out across. Like, he didn't have that Bane ability to get everyone to hear him, even those at the back, while he spoke quietly. It just felt like, and this is obviously me as a, uh, you know, budding audio engineer on my way up, thinking I would just really put some extra oomph into that. And he does actually end up bigger and deeper in later films. But... Welcome, Peter, son of Adam. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. And beavers, welcome to you, who have guided the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve so bravely to me. But where is the fourth child? Oh, Aslan, he has tried to betray them. He has... Joined the White Witch. That was partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him. And I'm sure that helped him to go wrong. Rise up, Sir Peter Wolfsbane. And whatever happens, never forget to wipe your sword. After watching how well they did in the BBC one, there is no way that their pantomime cow with an animatronic head should look good 34 years on, but it does. They actually treat the Aslan creation that they've got as the centerpiece for the Chronicles of Narnia very seriously, and it really does work. He's bigger than this version of Aslan. But the original uh, Rhythm and Hughes conception for what Aslan would look like was a non-Narnia-related tech demo where they had two girls walking down a regular street with cars going by with a lion in between them. And it looked so real and so palpable and so based in reality that it sold their services to this particular film production. I feel like the decision was made to keep him a little bit smaller than he could be to make sure that he was grounded in what seemed like a sense of reality. If he was too big, then the eye lines wouldn't quite work. He'd be obscuring entire children with his massive frame. There has to be a degree of equality between him and the children, particularly Peter. Hmm. That eye line, I think, really does have to match. Otherwise, if if he's looking down on Peter, then it Hmm. distorts that Peter is being placed in a position of authority, which is pretty Mm. important at that stage. Also, if he's so absolutely massive, it seems more like, well, he really probably could destroy the entire army on his own. Making him small enough to be vulnerable during those key scenes was probably a good idea. I'm still not sure I would have done all of this with a small version of Aslan. Maybe almost that he would change size depending on situation, Mm. which seems Narnia. It does say in the books that he gets bigger Hmm. uh, as the stories progress, and the reason is because 
because Lucy the kids is get bigger. bigger. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do wonder with that tech demo and how astounding that was for 2003 oh, yeah. oh my god this is the period it's of millennial so, rubber yeah absolutely it it looks like a real lion but you can't see that it's a composited thing which was what my assumption mm-hmm. was in the first place no, just none of us were saying this about the john favreau version of the lion king no indeed um, <laughs> but they, it did make me wonder if what you said about rhythm and hues and the the success that they achieved mm. actually ended up pricing them out of the market yeah. this makes me even more irate at people like flipping Roland Emmerich who yeah. couldn't tell the difference between a really detailed highly rendered version of a saber-toothed tiger and a cheaper quicker less rendered version it with was a fewer mammoth. hairs. Oh, was it a mammoth? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought it was one A of woolly hairs. mammoth with a million hairs versus half a million. But yeah, so he couldn't tell the difference. So they went with the cheaper one. And ultimately, <coughs> it's not hard to see that that could quite easily have ended up being what happened to Rhythm and Hughes. Hmm. We could get them, they're astounding, or we could get the cheaper version, nobody will be able to tell the difference anyway. Yeah, the lowest bidder. Yeah. I will say about the lion's size... Considering that this is the loudest analogy for, um, you know, Jesus, <laughs> um, it is kind of apropos that he assumes he's he's magnificent as a normal lion, but he's not a he's not an enormous lion. That's true. Because um, he, you know, as as it is told, he, he came to Earth to to us as a very humble. You know, as as a as a baby, as this poor carpenter, as this 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 man who could speak well, but he wasn't outwardly a king. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. He came in, to be a human, not a god. In the last yeah. crusade, uh, Donovan was like, "It needs to be giant and gold." <gasps> he chose poorly. <laughs> Should have gone for the cup <laughs> of a carpenter, smaller, brown. But yeah, uh, it's it's one of Neeson's finest performances I think Again, mainly because it's just so understated it's it's not that much actual vocal performance but he says enough that the version of Aslan that we're seeing on screen settles in our minds so that when he's silent we can still feel him if that makes sense that is Kerr Paravau the castle of the four thrones in one of which you will sit Peter as high king you doubt the prophecy? No. That's just it. Aslan, I'm not here will think I am. Peter Pevensey, formerly of Finchley. Beaver also mentioned that you planned on turning him into a hat. <laughs> Peter, there is a deep magic more powerful than any of us that rules over all of Narnia. It defines right from wrong and governs all our destinies, yours and mine. But I couldn't even protect my own family. You've brought them safely this far. Not all of them. Peter, I will do what I can to help your brother, but I need you to consider what I ask of you. I do want my family safe point when Jardis turns up and says I have the right to take Edmund and they're going back and forth again I actually had to remind myself after that scene was done that lion wasn't there <laughs> this, she was talking to a tennis ball on a stick 
But they, it's sold in such a serious way that, again, the, the illusion is complete to the point where you have to kind of smack yourself to remind yourself about the magic of movies. And I'd say that's a, a resounding triumph on everyone's part. The filmmakers for taking it seriously, the kids for acting like it was absolutely there. And again, um, Harry Gregson Williams' wonderful score, which, which treats Aslan with reverence rather than pomposity. Rather than King of Kings, it's more like, shh, hush, everyone. I'm being quiet right now because I'm just thinking, man, this is a really good movie. Yeah, yeah, it really is. This is not why it frustrated me when people were like, well, it's not Lord of the Rings. Also, uh, there's a hell of a lot of our own hopes and, uh, and fears stacked into what we consider to be deities. If we actually met one in real life, the compulsion would be to go, I expect him to be a bit bigger, with a bigger beard <laughs> and a deeper, booming voice. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, exactly. There's a neat little bit, which again isn't in the book, where Lucy and Susan kind of bond and Susan apologizes for being such a heel. It's little moments like this in this movie that redeem the character of Susan retroactively from the rather odious version of her that she develops into in the book. And eventually she's just odious off camera. And then there's the merest hand wave, which actually I was reminded of in uh, Shang-Chi, because it's actually set up oddly like this. Even Shang-Chi's army at the end are, are all wearing Nani and red. Susan and, and Lucy do a little bit of archery practice and then, uh, oh boy, it's going to be really difficult for Lucy to be very good at throwing daggers. Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently she has a preternatural ability to throw knives an incredible distance and hit bullseyes with them. It's, it's fine. Because when Peter then fights the White Witch, you have to kind of have seen that these kids have a natural aptitude for combat somehow. Because otherwise you'd be like, this kid, a few days ago, was chewing on his eraser, or rubber as we called them in the UK. That can get confusing. Um, in, in a schoolroom, and now he's double sword fighting with Jardis on a battlefield. Nothing when about they- this makes sense. When they're charging towards this 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 climactic battle, mm. I'm thinking Peter's at the head of this. Yeah, he's a he's a 16 year old. He's gonna die immediately. Yep. Will called foul on that, and I said it's symbolic. This is how Peter remembers it. The reality was probably there were a thousand Narnian animals who were like, let's just make sure we get in between Absolutely. this Three other army. Centaurs going right, you stay behind us. Yeah. <laughs> And as everyone, all of these trolls just keep dying whenever Peter even looks at them, it's because the animals have got his back. And he's like, why will no one fight me? Also, let's not forget, back in the day, teenage kings, not ridiculously unusual. And yes, there would be a ring of bodyguards Mm. around them making sure they didn't get killed because they didn't want the next king to have to be four months old. (laughs) Why? Why would you let us do this? The mad boy king. (laughs) He's zero. (laughs) This is our first baby, Griffin. I don't want to be. Don't make. Don't allow me to. Born married. Born Born married. married. Born married. Fuck. This is so good. It's great. No, come on. I want a. I want a beautiful big boy. Beautiful big baby who grows up into a beautiful big man. (laughs) I love him still. I love him a lot, actually. I did really like the um, the fact that Edmund 
hangs back and is tactical and there's archery they've got air superiority they really thought about this battle while it does contain two forces running at each other as hard as they can it's a child's version of a battle but it's a child who's thought about it yeah. at least more than the average I child i do love the line in the book that in the in the Adaptations, we only ever see it happen. But I do like the line in the book where uh, Peter points out that it occurred to Edmund to go for the wand and not the witch. And even reading it at like eight years old, I was like... Well, obviously. It was... It only just occurred to Edmund. No one else had thought of that. Half your force has been turned into battlefield statues. It was Leia who had the idea to take out the Death Star rather than each individual Imperial. Come on, Anyway, the scene where Aslan uh, walks to his sacrifice really got to you this time. Yes. Can you explain why? I think it was more than anything to do with the the sense of anticipation that comes with it. And the it effectively carries the same weight as Pippin's line in, I think it's Return of the King, where he says... Is it time? Yes. It's so quiet. It's the deep breath before the plunge. I don't want to be in a battle. But waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf, for Frodo and Sam? There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. The fact that Aslan knows what he's going to and... Although, obviously, the the outcome of this is something that he is aware of, there is no certainty for him how this is going to play out. And I think this time I really felt the weight of what this meant to Aslan, not just what it meant to Susan and Lucy. And I'm not sure why, why it would be so much stronger this time. But... You can you can feel it in the girls' performances as well, that sense of they don't even really know what's going to happen, but they can feel his loneliness and his trepidation and they know something bad is coming, they just don't know what. And it just, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you why this time was so much more powerful than every other. But it just had that real sense of foreboding and the inevitable. 
And even though I know how it turns out, it doesn't stop those lead-up moments from carrying all the weight in the world. Since this is kind of adapting um, the passion, the story of Christ's passion, there's that that lead-up to the table where Aslan tells them, I would like the company. And it, that's that's kind of his agony in the garden. Mm-hmm. And the, the two girls stay. In the Bible, the, in the stories there, um, they, the apostles fall asleep and they don't quite understand what's going on. And that leaves them, uh, they, 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 they are not there for his, for his mourning, for his anticipation, it's mm-hmm. torture. The girls are there, and I just I, I find that very poignant because they also don't understand, but they know that he needs the company, and they walk all the way there and they witness it. There's that last moment of his of Aslan's life where he's looking out, and you almost think, yeah, he is. He's looking right at them as he as he perishes, and you know, according to to my faith, that's that's the exact moment that uh, that Jesus would have too where he's thinking about who he's making this sacrifice for. So it's very it's very powerful. Absolutely. And there would I be right in thinking that they're kind of representative of the Marys at that point. Mm-hmm. Jesus's mother yeah. and Mary Magdalene who who may not be there for the lead but they are there for the uh, the crucifixion and for the the aftermath. Yes, and the the, the apostle John also was there for uh, for the for the end as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that moment of, as as you say, it's very representative of of that Jesus having to have faith that this is going to play out the right way, because at that point he doesn't know. Which strengthens yeah. it as a uh, uh, an action, because if you know you're going to be fine, because you're Phil Connors in Groundhog Day and you've killed yourself so many times, it doesn't make any difference. It's not. It doesn't mean anything. It's not really a sacrifice. Yeah. 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 Uh, he is. You know the the one of the worst tortures that anybody has ever gone through, and he uh, he in that garden's like. Oh please! Can we figure something else out? Hmm. Is this really it? Is this the only way? You know, I've never died before. And watching the the way the stone table is set up, if you look at medieval or even Renaissance uh, paintings of hell, it looks very much like this. It's like all of these imps and creatures sort of dancing around, going. Aah! When I was a kid, I understood that the Autobots were like us humans, and the Decepticons were like bad people but I couldn't quite put a finger on it but like imagine if aliens came and wanted to invade the planet as I grew older and a lot more these days it becomes more and more clear that the bad sides of a lot of children's media are ways of not necessarily making you afraid of the other because a lot of the time the bad guys are almost lovable in their shittiness as aware of this part of human nature that there is cruelty for the sake of cruelty we watch this uh, the, the, this scene unfolds as Aslan walks up and everyone's sneering at him and shouting at him and it's like, how can they be like this? But we've seen that in recent years because the internet's just ripped the doors open and we've seen that it doesn't necessarily... It's not just psychopaths and, and, and mass murderers who feel like this. Just regular people down the streets can be overwhelmingly full of spite. 
And if you're a decent person, you can never really fathom it. Why would a person behave like this? What do you gain out of it? Mm. But it is part of us. Yeah, I think part of it is that the these bad guys that were sort of outlined in those scenarios, it's about control and constriction and the idea that you want things to be held a certain way because otherwise it's chaos. It can be quite tricky to pass out because they're framed as chaotic, but they're not. They're trying to hold things in a certain way. And if you're one of the people in the middle who's like, well, I don't really want to be controlled, but I am acutely aware of the fact that I am being controlled because all of these systems are around and I can't do anything about them. Therefore, the second best thing is to make sure that control is extended to other people because it shouldn't just be me. The reason that the alt-right or KKK or slavers or name your death cult, anyone who's genuinely wallowing in that side of human nature the reason that they never really succeed long term, even though that could, they could also kill us all in their attempts at success, is because they're trying to marshal two opposing sides of themselves. The chaotic evil side that just wants to do whatever the fuck they want with no consequences, and the lawful evil side where it's like, no, I'm going to make the rules, and if you don't follow these rules, then you will suffer the consequences. No, the rules don't apply to me, I'm chaotic evil. And it's just back and forth and back and forth, and there's people who lean one way hard in those groups and there's people who lean in the other direction and somehow getting them all together they are combined in the unity of hating people who aren't like them and really what it comes down to is the more rigid you are the more likely you will break yeah the extended battle sequence in this film is one of the major differences from both the book and the BBC version. If you watch the BBC version, it was laughable when I was eight. It's insane now, by today's standards. It's a dozen extras or less in a small copse in England on a wet Tuesday, accompanied again by some Halloween costumes, very furry trousers, and hand-drawn animated critters. Now, Name, do you remember this? It probably says a lot that I don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's got, like, uh, Peter swatting at a sort of hand-drawn, animated... Watercolour griffin. Watercolour griffin. No, no, sorry. Oh, no, evil bats. on the good side. Yeah, the griffins on the good side. And then you've got a woman in a Halloween bat costume just flapping her wings in the camera. And I'm like, you know, if you took that out, it would actually increase the impact of this and reduce the absurdity. And then it cuts to a bunch of um, uh, short actors in lizard man costumes, kind of poking at uh, beautifully watercolour painted uh, winged panthers with their spears. And it's just everything is so shoddy. And I'll refer you back to why Lewis didn't really want to go into too much detail on the battle, and never really did across the seven books. For him, the nightmare was too close. It's something he didn't necessarily want to bring to children. Yeah, I mean, if you if you compare uh, the actual stretch of Helm's Deep with uh, what happens in the uh, movie of the Two Towers, where it's the centerpiece of that story, it's quite different. Uh, but the the moment when they are galloping towards each other and, and Gregson Williams' music just soars up and then pulls out, and you just hear, you know, it's it's Peter is galloping forwards, and you can hear his heartbeats, and then. There's this kind of, and then the leopards clash, and it just becomes bedlam. 
extra shout out to Shane Ranji, who was the guy who was piloting the Moomakill Oliphant in Return of the King, playing General Otmin, the giant minotaur, sort of this this hero villain yeah. bull man. And he just he has all of this massive physicality. I think he's sort of juxtaposed with I wanna call him Aurelius, the uh, the centaur who's kind of helping out um uh, Peter a lot. There's this kind of nobility versus this this big beastie. Apparently, during the uh, Stone Table sequence, and it was like three in the morning, Adamson uh, went to his uh, production designer. Um, can we change out these immobile faces on these creatures here for motorized ones with moving mouths? And it was it was basically like you know you're on the Titanic and saying, "Can I have a helicopter, please?" And so, <laughs> it is not physically possible nor emotionally possible to do what you're asking right now. Wasn't one of the reasons he got so irate because he'd suggested it to Adamson oh. some weeks previous, and Adam Adamson. Adamson was like, "No, no, 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 it'll be fine. Yeah. Just the masks will be fine." They don't uh, they don't let you work in Hollywood after that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's actually, it's it's a especially after Lord of the Rings, just kind of defined how astonishing battles are. And then films like Troy and Alexander that followed afterwards had very kind of muted battles that never really thrilled you, and you didn't really care so much about who was fighting or, or why. And here, like I said, it's a child's version of a battle, but it's also kind of it, it grabs your emotions and pulls it up and it gives you kind of a frantic feeling but there's kind of a fascination with seeing all these fantasy creatures of you know obviously ugly horrible trolls and witches cruels boggarts clashing in the middle on this big grassy english looking henry the fifth field but then there's this one juxtaposition moment because this is when aslan comes back around and by the way when he was killed and uh, the, a lot of the audience, I recall, gasped. And then a sister whispered very loudly to her sibling, it's okay, he's going to come back. Um, <laughs> when he does, they go to the witch's castle and he starts breathing all over these statues that then start coming back. And it's a, it's a wonderful seeing Mr. Tumnus. They excise the giant rumble buffin bit because it's somewhat ridiculous. Although he does actually feature in the movie briefly as giant rumble buffin. The bit with the, could I please borrow it? I think they even took that out of the BBC one. Like He's all hot and sweaty after kicking the doors open. And Lucy, Lucy gives, gives him a handkerchief. handkerchief and it's the size of a lentil. Mm. But after Aslan has cured all of these seemingly dead creatures from death by bringing them back from stone the threat of the witch is somewhat diminished you're like well she's been turning a lot of these creatures to stone on the battlefield they're actually way better off than those who got hacked in half by general otmin's massive scimitar then she turns a griffin to stone, and what happens to the griffin? He flies into the rock and shatters. It shatters. It's a really cruel but efficient way of making you stop going, ah, it's okay, I don't need to worry about who gets hurt in this battle, because it reminds you there's genuine stakes still. Yeah, I was really impressed by that moment you described of the two armies coming together. As I was watching it, I was like, wow, you know, People say this isn't Lord of the Rings, but I'm getting some of that battlefield right now. This is, it, it, it leaves an impression in ways that these other fantasy battles do not, because it is, it, I would say two things. They've lost Aslan, 
and they're, they've, they're being led by children. Mm-hmm. They, they've also got that line where they're like, they've got numbers way bigger than our own. And they say, well, numbers don't win a battle. And Peter's like, I think they help. <laughs> it, Again, he was uh, chewing on his rubber just a few days ago. And uh, when Edmund fights the witch again, Tilda Swinton has such a kind of a set, determined look on her face. She's so cruel when she gloats over Aslan and, and, and shouts. And there's this, she's got black eyes, like a doll's eyes. She is terrifying. And that, again, Isis Musenden's wonderful touches on her dress has got one black crow wing just kind of poking off to the right. And it's, it's she, I mean, she's Lucifer because this is hell and she's, you know, this is, I am part of God's general plan, the emperor over the sea, you kind of need me here. But much like Lucifer is often uh, depicted in, in a lot of theological uh, sci-fi, um, not happy with just the way, the status quo, the way things are. It's, it's, it's kind of a, she never questions, hang on, why would the Emperor over the sea be okay with Aslan submitting himself for this. She just sees it as, right, now I have the opportunity to cement my hold. Well, she she betrays her misunderstanding of the entire situation when she, she does her speech to Aslan about, you have given yourself to me, what do you think is going to stop me from going after Edmund as well once you're dead? Hmm. You've sacrificed your own life you haven't saved his this was entirely pointless because her interpretation is that Aslan is submitting himself to her he is not he is submitting himself to the deeper magic yeah I'm I'm glad that you bring that up because she's saying um, in his final moments torturing him saying oh all of this was for nothing she says so much for love that is her best case scenario for this Mm. is that she gets to kill Aslan, and she gets to still get Edmund for his sins, right? Yeah. That's that would be um, Lucifer's or Satan's best case scenario as well. Mm-hmm. How wonderful is it that Jesus has put himself on a silver platter for me? But it doesn't matter because I still get all of the all of the people who reject him, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the the conceit here is that you know you've got. Um, Jesus and Aslan making this sacrifice, it's how the people that he sacrificed for respond to that. It's not just a magic trick. It is, now what will you do? And again, when she fights Edmund, I at no point disbelieve that she is entirely ready to kill a child. Like Mm -hmm. She's just like, you are irritating me, but I'll get through this weak little boundary and and get to your underbelly. That literally get to the underbelly. That that moment where she stabs him with what remains of the wand, mm. that's in the BBC adaptation, but I don't mm. think it's mentioned in the book because obviously we don't see it happen. We only hear about mm. it after the fact. We know Edmund's been injured, but we don't know how. But that does seem to be a particularly vindictive move on her part that this is the source of her power. He's taken it away, but this is really like that death throw lashing out. Mm. Fine. Well, I have this jagged end of something. You can have that. Out of hell's heart, I stab at thee. Exactly. Peter's fight, I I like the fact that he wasn't necessarily going to beat her. All he's doing is holding her back for just a few extra moments. And Aslan's like this golden homing missile to kind of take the slaying of the witch out of Peter's hands. And again, 
It's pretty badass to see uh, an analogue for Jesus bite the head off an analogue for Satan. Let's go. <laughs> you don't exactly get to see that very often. Yeah. That, that moment, though, just before that happens, I don't know if there's any way they could explain this in words for a, a children's film, but I do seem to recall that there's, there's something around this concept in the book, which is that in that moment before he kills her, she knows what's going to happen and she embraces it. She is actually getting a glimpse of the best, what, what really is the best end for her, which is that she doesn't have to be this evil being anymore. So unlike good. Return of the King's uh, main complaint from uh, viewers, it doesn't uh, mess around by giving you 17 different endings. But then again, it only has one film to resolve. Technically, you get three. Hmm. But it's brief with all of them, and all of them are a joy. And a relief as well. There has actually been a hell of a lot of tension wrought and built up throughout this film because Swinton's White Witch really does seem insurmountable. So it's almost like when she's dealt with, it's a, it's a, it's a scaled version of the relief of the ring falling into Mount Doom. It's like, right, now we can just breathe out. The, the coronation's lovely. The, the, the lion that's not Aslan still wearing the pen glasses uh, that uh, Edmund gave him. The fox is alive and well and no longer stone. And notably, as I understand it, the BBC never restored that tea party table of a fox and a squirrel, so it always left that scene hanging for me. Though maybe that is better in the long run. In the world you will find there is hurt and harm that cannot be undone. And it is our duty not to mop up afterwards and avenge, but to prevent it happening to begin with. Not by being psychically aware of events before they happen, but by correctly identifying telltale signs of tyranny. Good things rarely come from those. But I think the thing I like the most, the touch I like the most, is after they finish being coronated, and Aslan goes for a, uh, a walk on the beach, and Lucy's just on the, uh, the balcony looking down at him and being told he won't be here all the time. And it's, she's being told this by Tumnus, but they are effectively deciding to stay here. They don't actually ever debate, we don't belong here, we've got to go home. They are all about, let's stay here. Georgie Henley cries very believably and very, like, that may have been the time that Anna Popperwell made her cry in the right way. Um, it's just a release of that tension. It's just a sense of relief, sadness over the fact that um, she doesn't get to sort of define her life by just what would be nice, which is that having Aslan around as guidance all the time. But it's a really nourishing moment of watching a story where emotion is often boxed up and not allowed and uh, and like there's no time for this we've got to keep moving it's finally saying to lucy it's okay to cry now i love it and then when we cut forward to them many many years later we've got peter looking like one of the bgs georgie henley's sister playing her older self Rachel which i thought was Henley. lovely and sophie winkleman the lady who played big suze in uh, peep show uh, playing uh, an older much more pleasant version of susan <laughs> i don't think they ever actually say uh, the white heart that they're chasing you just chase him and then touch him and then he gives you a wish they're not trying to kill this white deer it's uh, it's it's more just kind of a, a challenge a chase challenge there's a 
the brutality of uh, the the way medieval uh, monarchs tended to rule is very much kind of readjusted for a soft, safe kids version of uh, of events, which is why when you grow older and then you actually witness stuff like Game of Thrones and go, this is horrible. And then people go, it's realistic. Kings and dynasties really did behave like this. And you're like, I don't want to live in this world. I want to live in Narnia. Thank you. Yeah. But also, yes, it might be realistic. But if I lived in that time, I wouldn't be living in the Lannisters' castle having to watch all the shit they get up to. That's true. I'd be in one of those little stone houses across the way, minding my own business, tending a vegetable garden. I think we said something to that effect when we first covered Game of Thrones. <laughs> Much like the internet, uh, the uh, the show and the books kind of thrust into your face the worst parts of, uh, of these uh, various houses. Absolutely. That shit's not on Twitter. You don't have to witness it all. I'm, we, we talked about it for a moment, but I do love that Edmund becomes Edmund the Just. You yeah. know, that, that, that feels like a very strong circle for him to have made, to be kind of that, that little annoying jerk <laughs> in the beginning of the movie yeah. who lies and says things this way and that way and is always going against his siblings. But he comes around. I just want to give a shout out to a childhood friend of mine. She, when uh, we were younger, uh, she had leukemia. She, she's better now. Uh, but she did get a Make-A-Wish. And uh, she made a wish to meet uh, the, to meet Edmund, to meet Standard Keynes. Oh. And I, when I was a kid, I was like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you want to meet William Mosley instead? <laughs> um, Two Kings but, of yeah. Narnia, baby. <laughs> But yeah, she she got to meet him and he was very nice. That's he he was kind of flattered that uh, that he was chosen for the wish. He's actually the only one of them that didn't continue with acting. He did it for a little bit longer, but then he went on and got into politics and now is involved in various Middle Eastern projects. I think the, the the way the coronation is set up, this is one of the moments for me, because I know, Alex, you're going to make reference to this in a little bit, but this story and these books are kind of foundational for me in my paganism, which is really ironic. <laughs> but it's to do with how the natural world is presented and... For the coronation, the calling out the names of the kings in connection with the four directions, mm -hmm. that's the opening to a pagan circle casting ritual. You call the quarters, you salute the north, the east, the south and the west. And it really felt very meaningful to me for that reason, that it, it kind of makes them part of the land. Mm. And like I said, everything about the way that they're arranged uh, is, uh, suggests that they are there to serve rather than to rule over. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it, it's similar to Pratchett's perspective on uh, monarchy. Mm. If you're going to have one, this is the kind of monarchy it needs to be. One yeah. that recognises that they are a servant, not a, a ruler. Mm. And that should go for if you have an elected parliament as well. Mm. Rather yes. than a bunch of... Uh, Businessmen using their connections to line their pockets in a corrupt to system. Serve the people. I don't understand. You know, be there for, <laughs> for them. them. Not getting you. Not following you. <laughs> so to close out, I think it is most noteworthy, and this relates to what Sharon just said, that within this group 
of three. We have a practicing Catholic of Native American extraction, a philosophical agnostic, and a long-term pagan. And all three of us love this film. While intended in book form to be a way for little kids to embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ, whom C.S. Lewis very devoutly believed in the divinity of, there is imagery rooted in pre-Christian pagan mythology, suggesting a deeper magic that none of us need to put into a scientifically quantifiable box. The film eschews exactitude or doctrine and fire and brimstone or fear-mongering. In effect, it focuses on the sensibilities of noble self-sacrifice and is rampantly anti-fascist in a way that makes perfect sense for the writers who then go on to write the now historical cinematic Captain America. And they did that for eight years. Successful years. They reigned over Narnia for eight years of Steve Rogers. <laughs> Conversely, a lot of expressly Christian movies like God's Not Dead, What Would Jesus Do, Heaven Is For Real, God's Club, The Woodcarver, and the hastily renamed Christmas Mingle are of a low quality in line with their pittance of a budget, continuously creating heathen straw men to argue with in a neurotic closed system and damning to perdition sinful non-believers. Or else like The Burning Hell, Final, Colon, The Rapture, Left Behind, 1, 2, and 3, the terrifyingly named Trump's Prophecy, or crazy racist woman-hating bastard Mel Gibson's The Passion concern themselves with eternal punishment, or indeed human Aslan being tortured on the stone table for the lion's share of the two-hour runtime. I infinitely prefer this approach that manages to distill some of the best of the teachings and philosophy of Lewis's Jesus, leading by example, as they relate to simple decency transposed even beyond humanity and into beavers, a fawn, Father Christmas, and a divine lion. It's kind, inclusive symbolism that, like Lewis's book, makes you feel like you're in on a mysterious secret, but that you have to learn from that world and bring those lessons of being a brave, compassionate person, a wise child that can recognize and oppose horrible behavior out into your own. We are happy to serve all our loyal subjects in the land of School of Movies. A huge thank you to everyone on our Patreon, and a big shout out to those in the top tier Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hebner. Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicol, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vehi, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, 
Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Wazenski, Timothy Green, Toby Skill Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. The Princess Thieves. Prologue. A thousand years ago, the Dwart, proud and cunning, first made their home on the island of Britannica, in the realm of Kelador. Uh, Celador. No, no, it's Kelador with a hard C from the Celtic, darling. I've only ever heard Celador. Then everybody you've ever met has been saying it wrong. I think I know how to pronounce Kelador. Well, okay, that's fine. You're the boss. Yes, I am. Shall I continue? Yes. From the top or? Just from in the realm of Celador. Kelador. Yep, sorry. Carry on, please. On the island of Britannica. In the realm of Celador. Oh, bollocks! It's alright. It was good. Just, just, can you do that again? Just without the bollocks. You've got me saying it now. Yes, I exceed. That one was my fault. What was the last of those four walls? You only said three. Right, well, we're calling it New Century One at the moment. It's a placeholder name, obviously. It's a very silly name. Where I come from, worlds have names like Arda and Etheria and Narnia. Well, no, that's absolutely fine. We'll change the placeholder name. What would you like to call it? Really? Really? Oh, all right. And you can find out the name of that world by listening to The Princess Thieves, part of the New Century Multiverse. Have you heard of or seen any of those Christian movies that I mentioned before? Oh my gosh. Uh, And they're very cringy. Hmm. (laughs) uh, God's Not Dead was kind of a hypnotic movie for the people in my circles. But ultimately, when you look at that with a magnifying glass, you you, you find a straw man. And uh, there there are better conversations to be had than some of the ones in that movie. Before we go then, Name, is there anything you'd like to plug and promote this holiday season? Uh, two quick things. I have a Let's Play channel called The Super Sibs that I do with my brother. Uh, other was that you with the uh, the game of The Fireman, where it was a photoshopped image of you <laughs> on a very muscular fireman's chest? Uh, what do you, that wasn't Photoshop. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you look like a Photoshopped fireman. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did an episode uh, on the Chronicles of Narnia GameCube game. Ah, yes. And like stepping through the wardrobe, it is a mesmerizing experience. Um, so you can check that out. And uh, I also stream on Twitch uh, at Nami the Nerd. And I just put out on my YouTube channel of the same name. Uh, a 45-minute discussion on ranking uh, the Phase 4 MCU films. And I give thoughts on pretty much every entry in that lineup. I think it turned out pretty good. Thank you very much, Name. Okay, so we will be back next week with an all-time cinematic classic that is... It only actually takes place around the holidays and uh, Christmas uh, uh, for the second half. It's A Wonderful Life. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. It's pretty good, folks. You should see it. Okay, so until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And once a king and queen of Narnia, always Always a king or queen of Narnia.
born and blown off.